Coming to you from the TLD studios in Temecula, California, it's the Whiskey Throttle Show, taking you deep inside the lives of the legends and leaders of our sport. This week's guest is brought to you by Yamaha, the leaders in the power sports industry. Motocross bikes, street bikes, adventure bikes, side-by-sides, quads, boats, generators. Yamaha sets the standard. Yamaha revs your heart. Method Race Wheels, the strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off-road. Method dominates the off-road market with wheels for your truck, sprinter, Jeep, or UTV. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle for 20% off your order. Troy Lee Designs, built for the world's fastest racers. TLD blends elite level protection with industry leading style and performance. Moto, bike, helmet paint, casual wear, whatever your passion, Troy Lee Designs is waiting for you on the next level. Nihilo Concepts, enhance your riding experience with superior products like the Start Stop Conversion Kit, Fuel Pet Cocks, Frame Grip Tape, Lever Grip, Grip Donuts, Secondary On Switch, Billet Foot Pegs, Billet Throttle Housings, and so much more. The Hilo Concepts produces exceptional products, all of which are made right here in America. And by SKDA. SKDA is the ultimate destination for exceptional motocross graphics, customer service, and artistic excellence. Trust them to elevate your ride and showcase your individuality on the track, making every ride an exceptional experience. Was June 2021 coming to you from the Spot Network Studios here in Santa Ana, California? It's a Whiskey Throttle Show. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I am your host, David Pingree, and uh, we've got a pretty cool guest today for you guys. Uh, this is somebody who was Bob Hanna's mechanic, won a bunch of championships with him. He was a race team manager at Factory Yamaha, uh, race director. Uh, in fact, he's held just about every title you can can at, at Yamaha, and uh, recently retired Keith McCarty. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thanks, Dave. Nice to be here. Very excited to have you on. Uh, you know, we 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 don't get a lot of team managers and mechanics, but I want more of them because you guys have such great stories. And as we get into this, people will see you were involved with so many riders and so many different eras of the sport, and not just motocross, but road racing. And I'm not even sure what else you were involved with. Everything. So I'm everything. I'm anxious to hear about it. Yeah. Um, we kind of start off with the Method Race Wheels front-end chatter. You guys are familiar with this. Uh, they're the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road racing. So if you've got a truck, van, Sprinter, SUV, or UTV, check them out for all your needs on wheels. Uh, and I just wanted to start by asking you, what, what's your thoughts on the health of the sport in motocross right now? Well, you know, I went to the Apollo event, and um, I, I'm happy to report it. I thought that it was super healthy, you know, the... Attendance was really good. It was probably one of the most perfect days of racing that I've been to in a very, very long time. The track was nearly perfect condition. The weather cooperated. It was just a, a real nice ambient temperature with cool breeze and made it really comfortable for everybody watching. The crowds were massive, you know, and orderly. Uh, so I was super surprised. It felt kind of cool coming in a little bit late and having your pass at will call and going through and getting to talk to people and, yeah. and watch, you know, four great motos. That was awesome. And some incredible competition. I think this yeah. 450 class is maybe the best yeah. I've seen and most unpredictable since. There's a lot of young kids 90s? coming up that are pushing yeah. the older guys or the more seasoned guys. So it's going to be really good right down to the end. And what about just uh, amateur racing and bike sales? You know, I think one of the positives of COVID has been yeah. you 
Everything, bikes are sold out. Sure. That's board. Sure. I think, um, I mean, I think the economy from that, from a motorcycle perspective, everybody's sharing in the wealth. The aftermarket companies, the manufacturers, uh, promotions, I'm sure, are going good. You know, trinket sales, yeah. ads, t-shirts, all that jazz. So I, I think it's going to rebound very, very quick. Actually, it's saw where it was for sure. Yeah. Well, I hope you're right. Um, it's it's. I feel like there's been this decline with amateur racing a little bit where folks aren't racing on the weekends as much. There's still a lot of riders, but it's just a weird um, dichotomy of, yeah, we got great bike sales, but the races aren't really that well attended at a local level yeah. still. So, well, again, you know, people not being able to work or losing their jobs in certain industries puts a big damper on a lot of things. And once that starts to rebound, I think, you know, motorhome sales are big, travel, everybody's pushing it to be able to get out into the open space. I'm pretty sure it'll come back too. Yeah, I hope you're right. Um, hey, one, and then our, our, our next thing I wanted to just touch on, I want to dedicate this show to Rocky Aiello who passed this week. Uh, pretty tragic deal. Um, don't know all the details of it, but he's been in our sport for decades. And, and I know he worked at Yamaha for a long, long time. Yeah, we were close friends and uh, I'm really, really sad for him and his family for sure. You know, it's just uh, never easy to lose somebody like that. It's a tough part of our sport, right? I know you've been involved long enough to see guys get badly hurt or, or killed and mm-hmm. Um, does it ever, I mean, does it ever, I, I know for me at times I go, man, I, what am I doing? I shouldn't even be riding these things. This is nuts. Yeah. But then you love it so much. You always yeah. come back. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough from my, from the points I've been in is where you have to push somebody to their limits, but you just know how quick bad things can happen for people. And, uh, you know, your heart just goes out and you question a lot of the things you're doing if you're involved in any of that, you know, but to lose people suddenly like Rocky or Mike Bell most recently or Marty Smith before that and his wife, and it's just, just really, really, you reflect back on your times with them, but your heart goes out to their families too, because they're larger than life to them, I'm sure. So I really feel bad for them. Yeah. And, and the moto community is pretty tight knit. Uh, yeah. Even if you don't know somebody super well, you still feel a connection to him a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I remember, shoot, even when Jimmy Button got hurt, I remember uh, I was racing that day and you were walking through the pits and I stopped you and I said, hey, is Jimmy okay? And I could see the look on your face and you said, no, he's not. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Yeah, that was, a, that was one of the worst days of my career because I was standing literally five feet away from where it happened and watched it happen. And um, I just couldn't put the injury didn't relate to the the the, the sequence of what yeah. actually happened. It was so slow and seemingly nothing, and it turned out to be this giant life changing yeah. event. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, you know, I, I'm I know he's not a hundred percent like he used to be, but his he's got his life, his kids, his family, his work, and he, he's uh, one thing after the the injury, and he got the job at Washerman. I was so proud of him how how he does that job he probably was one of the best agents or writer guys like that that uh that i that i've known or dealt with because he's fair and equitable but professional and knowledgeable and you know all he has everybody's interest you know on the yeah. table it's just he's done a great job so yeah I, i'm for him i always love seeing guys make a good transition out of racing sure and he did it under the worst of circumstances yeah. and he's been so successful. I, I'm yeah, not to sound condescending, but super proud of him. 
Um, hey, I want to remind you guys, get over to whiskeythrottleshow.com. We've updated our website completely. You can catch all our old shows there, buy merchandise. Uh, we've got a lot of neat things coming on in there, so check that out. Uh, we sure appreciate it. And let's get to our questions here. Um, so I want to start, you know, we kind of start at the very beginning here, Keith. Like, tell me where you grew up and, and what your childhood was like. Yeah. You know, I was born in Montebello, California, you know, probably 50 miles, 40 miles from here. Grew up in Bellflower down the area. That's where I went to that school and... You know, was uh, I graduated in 1971 from Downey High School and went. To, I was working already as a dishwasher and a engine rebuilding car engine rebuilding place. And really, all my background or my early years was about automotive stuff. You know, I went to the drag races a lot. Some guys on my block lived down there, taught me a lot about that. I was super interested in cars and car engines and things and did a lot of stuff for my friends that could afford rods, you know. I'd yeah. just the valves and timing and everything every Friday night so they'd go street racing and, you know, I'd have two or three cars lined up in front of my house and I'd be out there doing it, you know, go ride along with somebody and have a good time. But uh, I really was kind of going down that path. And then, I don't know, my uncle took me dirt bike riding, you know, one time and, um, I was like, man, this was, it was just something totally new because yeah. I had a lot of birth defection and problems when I was younger. I had open heart surgery when I was seven years old. So I was not really developed, you know, oh, really? early on. So I was along the weaker side, but then by that time I was stronger, getting stronger every year. And, and so, you know, I could do a lot more physical things and, uh, but I really kind of got a passion for the motorcycle thing and kind of started turning my direction that way um me and my brother built some choppers and stuff you know during that time to try bonneville flathead harley you know pan heads and just different stuff and um so all types of motorcycling i was kind of getting involved in and uh this job came around i was working at an engine rebuilding place in paramount california and car engine and uh, running a surface grinder and doing a bunch of different stuff and and this opening came up for uh, Ralph Williams. It was a major car dealership in Southern California. He opened up a Suzuki dealership. Okay. And so I went to work for them and helped open the store up. It turned out to be like a big tax thing, you know, where they just was open for six months, which I didn't know. Oh. But I got some experience at the shop and helped open it up and close it down. But meanwhile, I met a couple of Japanese guys that, uh, that were running the service area, you know, and um, they went on to work at Suzuki in their racing department. And uh, I got to be, well, they, one of them lived with us, me and my mom. And uh, so then I started going to the pro races and stuff and, you know, seeing the people that I was reading about. What years would that have been? Uh, 71, you know, really, that's when I graduated, but right, right around 71, 72, okay. 73 area, you know. Um, but anyway, I ended up going to like the real early, maybe the first Coliseum with them, not working for them, but with them, you know, and, uh, was changing tires and yeah, stuff, you helping know, out. Was helping out where I could. And then it's like, man, I, I want to do this. So I kind of started directing myself that way. And it took me, I had to take a job at Suzuki to, in the warehouse before I got into the racing department, you know, and it took about a year and a half or two years. I was ready to leave thinking, well, this isn't working. And right away, I got a call in the racing department and started working there. And, uh, I don't know if it was November or I don't know what month, but anyway, right away, got back in there and of course for Mike Renard, my first guy who was turned out, he later became a stunt guy in Hollywood and that, okay. and Rich Thorwaltz and, uh, were two of the first guys. And oh, so you worked for Rich? I didn't work for him, but I, he, he, uh, 
he was riding for them and I did help out sometimes when his mechanic wasn't available. So we were really good friends with him, with his family and such. And then Tony DeStefano right after that, while Billy Rossi was there, they were the next two years. Tony was my guy and he actually won the first couple of championships for Suzuki, you know, uh, during that period. It was 75, I guess. 75 and 76, I think, was something year with him. But anyway, I was there for four or five years and then came to Yamaha in 70, uh, 1977. Let, let, let me slow you down. You're speeding on me. Let me, yeah, I want to back up a little okay, bit. Sure. You said it in high school. I read somewhere you had like, you were in an auto shop class. Is that kind of where yeah. you, you started developing? Yeah. Some of those yeah. Well, I was, a, I was an assistant teacher for, uh, you know, automotive adult education. So okay. I would say after, help the guy, you know, teach people how to, set a distributor in, check timing, you know, change oils, you know, whatever, whatever was going on with them. Uh, and, but yeah, that's, that was in the very beginning. And so you were, you already had, prior to those classes, you already kind of had right. some, some mechanical yeah. skills. Yeah, I was drive, helping my friends with their cars, putting engines in, you know, transmissions, whatever, you know, I really kind of into that. And then what was your first bike? I think you said a, like a YZ80? It was, it was a YZ80, I wanted to press steel frames. I don't remember the model number, you know. Uh, there was a riverbed near us and with just kind of a sidebar big dirt field with big jumps i mean we were launching these things off there you know and just i'm sure we looked like a bunch of goofballs you know, out there jeans probably jeans yeah. you know uh, work boots and a helmet you know short sleeve t-shirts or whatever so you know i'm sure by today's standards you know not really smart but uh, we we had a great time you know best time ever though as a kid right you know we we used to ride in uh when they were prepping lots, there was a big Walmart near our house and ride over there, ride in that field. And everybody, everybody went to Lions Drive Ship on Wednesday nights and watched the racing. And then we'd come back and, you know, do our thing, go to Bay Mare, which is a, a big track near uh, Valencia and all that. It used to be really good. We'd go camping there and go riding and racing, you know, and I, I was just, uh, you know, always involved in it, you know, it was yeah. really... And so you raced as well? I did, just a couple of times, not much. We didn't have... My bike wasn't race-worthy, but I get to borrow some bikes and everything. And uh, again, you know, I just wasn't that strong to be able to manage it all, you know, but uh, I had fun and loved being there and being a part of it, working yeah. on stuff, you know. You were passionate about it, just, yeah. just being involved, yeah. Yeah, as kids, we had go-karts as kids and all that stuff all the time, and... So, yeah. so you knew right away, kind of at that point, you wanted to do something with the sport. Yes. You just weren't quite sure at that point. All right. Mm -hmm. So uh, you kind of already told us you got hired over at Suzuki two years in the warehouse, huh? Yeah. I mean, that was good. It was. Did I mean, you learn a lot of that at that? Well, I mean, you, you learned a lot of the parts. And I still would go over to the racing guys. I knew everybody in the racing shop. And on the weekends, I would go with them to local races. So it's not like I was a far from it. But just learning the processes of a company was really good. That was my first big company thing. I was an IEB, IBEW union guy in Suzuki's warehouse, you know, and see how the unions can kind of jack a company over, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got a little bit of that, but it was, uh, you know, it was it was a good thing, good camaraderie in there, you know. So you think all those things from the dealership uh, to all, to that Suzuki job mm -hmm. sort of shaped you and really helped yeah. help you to be ready for sure. what you did at Yamaha. Sure, exactly. Had a really deep understanding before I ever went there, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, because I get asked a lot of times, hey, I want to I get into the industry and be a mechanic or be involved. And uh, they, they kind of want it. They go, I, I can build an engine, yeah. and they want to jump right onto a race team. Yeah. doesn't really work that way, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got to pay your dues. Yeah, you do. I mean, I, when you're saying that, I'm thinking the very first job I had, the first job, 
was when me and my brothers were building choppers and there was a painter who we used to hang out with, his name was Johnny Seven, and there was a motorcycle shop, just a random shop. I worked in that shop separating nets, bolts, and washers, because everybody's got that big box of thought that they don't know what to do with. Here, kid, I'm gonna pay a dollar an hour, and this is what you're gonna do. I'm like, okay, I was happy to do it, you know? Yeah. What else, I'm done with that, what else can you do? So you can't be too proud that you won't do something, sweep a floor or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, that was, it was a big deal. I think that's a maybe a generational thing where we've lost some of that. Yeah. You know, people come out of we college created, or whatever. We created it, you know. Yeah, and they want to just no. I'm ready for management. Yeah, it's right. like, no, no, no. Go separate the nuts, bolts, yeah. and washers for a little bit. You know, uh, that's interesting. Okay, so I got to ask you your time at Suzuki. Mm-hmm. One, you worked with Tony D. Yeah, I won a championship with him. Two. What was that like? Uh, Tony was it was awesome. We, he was, uh, you know, he introduced me to some really good people and that were close to him. Um, very likable kid. Uh, I was sad to have him, you know, have his injury with his eye and then his uh, paralyzation, you know, that was tough to, I mean, that wasn't with me, it was after okay. I worked with him, but, um, you know, we were really close friends and, uh, you know, he was a real hardworking kid. I did what I needed to do, you know, and the Suzuki thing was very different. We shared fans you know me and bernie thompson mm-hmm. steve stackable rode for suzuki during that period too and and um you know me and bernie were drive co-drivers and stuff you know and so it was the whole experience was just good for me getting out on the circuit in the very early days it was kind of a cowboy thing you know yeah. uh bill west the promoter was you know around for the florida winter series pat ray there's a number of guys and it was it was probably one of the most remarkable things a kid from Southern California that had never really been out of Southern California, but on a family vacation to Missouri, got to do, you know, mm-hmm. and that's age of your life. So um, it was great. I loved the box fan days. I, I really, I feel fortunate. I got to experience it because, yeah. you know, middle of my career, it went away and, yeah. and they're, they kind of don't exist anymore. But were all four of you guys traveling in that one box fan? It wasn't a box fan. There were two of us. Like the riders weren't traveling. It was a regular Dodge Maxi van. That was our very first thing. And we went to the Florida Winter Series. We piled tires and bike, two bikes, tires, suitcases, parts into that van, went to Florida, rented one of those uh, garage space things and okay. made that our base camp in Orlando. And then we just went from there to the different places in Florida to race and the riders they drove their own. Well, they were, they didn't, they may have flown, but most of them, Tony had his own van and I don't know what stack he did. I, but you know, we just, me and Bernie were in that van. Then we graduated to the Bosch van. We thought, Oh my God, made it. You know, this is like, <laughs> this is amazing. You know, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it was time. It was. But it was it was good in a sense because it didn't put the whole burden on one person, you know. Sure. Kind of eased me into it. Then when I went to Yamaha, it was here on your own. Here's your box fan. Here's your box of parts. We'll see you at the racetrack. Kind yeah. of thing. You know that was that was eye opening coming from Suzuki, but you know worked out. Well, I love the old photos, uh, even from Europe, especially from Europe, because in the seventies, you know, the bikes on an old wooden block yeah. and they're in the back of a pickup and, and the coster's laying in the shade of the truck on the grass, you know, no pressure washers. No, no, no. I mean, it was, if it's uh, raining, there's a bucket under the edge of the tent to collect all the rainwater <laughs> so you can wash your bike, you know? Yeah. It was very simple. Um, just simpler times, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. And I think people lose sight of that. And I think it's neat to go back and, yeah. you know, imagine, imagine our pro riders living like that today. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't know what to do. 
you know, I remember being in Czechoslovakia, the motocross of nations in that period, 70 something, you know, and uh, going in the outhouse, there's no toilet paper. There's a stack of notebook paper there, you know, and you're like, what? You know, and you're tearing it and crumpling it, opening it and tearing it and <laughs> trying, to trying, to, it trying to get it ready for use, you know, and it makes you start to appreciate your country and, you know, what, you, what, what your life was like as a kid or whatever, yeah. you know, those are the, but to deal with it, you know, yeah. and, uh, and well, move on. Czechoslovakia back then, you're lucky it wasn't just a hole out in the forest, yeah. you know. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, okay, so and I got to ask about Rich Thorwaldson because uh, I'm actually related to him. Ah. He is my grandfather's cousin. Um, so somehow there's a relation there and, uh, I never got to meet him, Yeah, but, awesome. uh, I thought, man, that's, that, I, to me, it's so cool that I was related yeah. to a guy who was that, yeah. that successful finished second. So we, you know, we're both, uh, consummate runners up in, yeah. in championships. But, um, what did you know about him? Tell what can you tell me? Oh, you know, he was older when he started, he was a desert guy and it turned kind of motocross guy, if I'm not mistaken. And he was a little bit older, but and that was probably what the great thing very mature, Never led people down the wrong way. Wasn't a party guy. Just was there to do the job. Very kind of like the Craig Monty thought before he started running his mouth. Was pretty, you know, not not super direct. Knew how to say it nicely, you know. Okay. And we, uh, I just, you know, I liked him a lot, and he was somebody that I could ask a question to and get a really straight answer, you know. Okay. And um, but very respectful for everybody, and you know, he was just a hardworking guy. They're just. You know, he had talent, but there's a lot of younger guys that had that little bit of ads and fitness or whatever, you know, and sure. that makes it a little tough. So. When, and I want to say it was maybe it was 77 where he got second in the 500 championship. Does that sound right to you? I think it would have been. Uh, was it earlier than that? I think it was earlier than that. Yeah. Okay. Because I think by that time, I think he probably stopped riding by that time. So it might have been 76 or even 75, I don't recall. Okay. Huh. I mean, that's why I say all those. I used to have. Stuff or I know it. Like if you ask me, I could tell you the top ten, but it's like, man, there's been too many races. No, no, there's no way you can remember all that stuff. I just think it's interesting because I, I uh, you know, I sat there one night before my grandpa passed away, and he, my grandpa was hilarious. He was very stoic, and he looked. He's just sitting there in his rocking chair. He goes, "You know, I had a cousin who raced once." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, really? You know, you know, you always hear, yeah. Oh, I have, a, I have a friend that raced, and he starts telling me about him. And yeah, his name was Rich Thorwaldson. You know, another because my my grandfather's name was. Uh, uh, Svensson, he was Norwegian. And so, uh, he was very proud of that heritage. And sure. so, uh, I go, where'd you start? I said, I think I've seen that name. And so yeah. I started asking him some more questions. He goes, yeah, I think he was pretty good. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, grandpa, you're 92. You never told me about this before, yeah. you know? So anyway. Yeah. I remember being in Florida and he had a dog, but I think, I think it, I'm trying to remember all the scenario, but he had a dog and there was a lot of alligators and some in the swamps by where we were. And I guess his dog got ate, you know, whatever. And, and he, he just was very sorry about, yeah, nobody's seen old blue or whatever <laughs> his name is today. And I don't know, he may not be coming back. And uh -huh. that's, that's funny. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you, uh, left Suzuki, went to Yamaha. Mm -hmm. How did that transition happen? Was, was, uh, well, yeah, it's funny. You should ask that one to, uh, you know, when, when I was working at uh, Suzuki, sponsorship stuff kind of was just starting to happen. And Preston Petty was building fenders and such. And mm -hmm. my time at Suzuki, we had a lot of problems with the front fender. Um, you know, the worst ones were this very thin plastic that used to break in half right in front of the triple clamp. Triple clamp was really a small offset. So there wasn't a lot of 
materialized support for the front fender. So it would break, especially when they got mud on it. So we found a fender through a lot of testing that it was a nylon fender and it would survive several races. And so, you know, we were getting ready for a Trans Am and Suzuki at that time had Roger, Garrett, Gaston Rayer, uh, Watanabe. There was like 10 guys that were racing for Suzuki in the Trans Am. And I was at the, the supervisor, I think, in there. We had to get all these tires and wheels and pipes ready for this big 10-race uh, Trans Am series. And That's an all-star cast. Yeah, it's like crazy and cool. And Tony had gone to a trade show like right before the first race in Middle Iowa, I think it was, and comes back with this Preston Petty Fender and says, here, put this on the bike. And now imagine I've just worked my butt off getting all this stuff ready for the series, drove in this caravan of people from LA to Ohio, and right when I get there, he's going to put this thing on. I'm like, I don't think so. You know, I go, this, we haven't tested this, whatever it breaks, he goes, well, they're going to pay me $10,000 to use it. I go, well, so what? What if it breaks in half? You know, I mean, that's all my time and everybody's time just wasted. And I said, he wasn't going to bat down, neither was I. And I said, well, here's the deal. If you want to use it, you put it on. And if it breaks, you can change it in between the models. And it just so happens this was like this gnarly mud race. First model, 13th place, but it was broken in half. Um, I don't have a pressure washer. We're just scraping mud off. So he put the fender on the next, I think we pre-drilled them for him or whatever, but two fenders broke in half, you know, that day, just total terrible results. Mm. It's like, what if it's the spark plug or the wheel or whatever next? I mean, why don't you just take care of the riding and I'll worry about the bike, you know? And then Suzuki, at the end of the series, you know, we were kind of at odds and I went into this guy named Shignoli. He was a the main guy at the Suzuki saying, hey, I need you to support me here, you know? And and uh, he said, well, you know, we have to support Tony. I'm like, okay, you know, I have a job offer from Yamaha. And he's like, no, you don't. And I go, yeah, I do. And it's for a lot more money than you're paying me. I don't want to go, but if, you, if I don't have your support, then I'm going to do it. He didn't want to do that, you know, which I understand. I mean, as a manager guy, get the rider, you know, it all has to work. But in this case, it made it much easier for me. You know, I left and got more money and I wasn't 100% sure I was working with Bob, but I had an idea and then it all just took off from there. You know? Wow. So, Turned out to be probably a great Five more championships. Yeah, it was, just, it was awesome. We had a great relationship on and off the track, you know, we're just still we remain good friends. And, you know, my, I would, met my wife at Yamaha and stuff and we are like this little team, you know, she yeah. was washing this stuff and taking care of his boots and everything. So, so tell me about the, when you went to Yamaha, how, how long before you found out you were going to be working for him? I think right. I mean, I think I knew right on my life. Yeah. Well, would you remember the day you met him? Or had did well, you I met him at Suzuki. He, okay. was, he rode for Suzuki in their privateer thing and did the local races. Okay. So we knew each other and he'd come in to the race shop, which was right next to the shop at Santa Fe Springs. And he was getting his stuff out and we talked, but I really didn't know him. We just, we always knew there's fast guys, but are they in good enough shape yeah. to be able to last in national? At that time, they were 40 plus two laps, 40 minutes plus two. Not for the faint of heart in St. Petersburg, Florida, or yeah, no, you know, New Orleans, or whatever. But so had yeah. he, and he hadn't won a championship prior. He, to that. he won. He One won. So he was at Yamaha in 1976, and a guy named Bill Bushka was working on his bike, and he won the 125 championship that year. Okay, right. So he beat Marty and and was pretty good. Now I don't know what happened to Bill. What the problem was? There was some problem, and anyway. He, he was getting a new mechanic and he, he gave them a few names. I was one of them and I ended up taking the job. 
So, okay. so, so take me through that preseason, you know, your guys' initial sort of learning each other. Yeah. And well, the first series was the Florida Winter Series. And, you know, we really hadn't done a whole lot up to that point. And um, I'm just trying to remember which bike we actually used. I don't think we had the worst bike stuff at that time. It came a little later. But, you know, I drove back there. Same scenario. We have a garage we would rent as the base. All five races were in Florida. And uh, they're traveling around. And he showed up. And, you know, he was... Uh, he was active, you know, we were always, always playing, you know, like basketball or we wrestle a lot. And, you know, I, I'm trying to remember when Bebo and John Savitsky came into our world, you know, maybe we met down there and we became really good friends. So, you know, John and Bebo would, or John and Bob would hang out and me and Bebo would work together. And Savitsky wrote for Suzuki, if he, I remember. Yeah, but then he changed to Yamaha's oh, too. I think okay. Bob helped him out and stuff, you know, and Bebo came to work at Yamaha and, you know, it just uh, turned out to be, you know, we were great, all great friends, but we would have these battles, like just crazy wrestling, you know, thrashing each other. And, you know, we, we did some, some crazy things during our time for sure. And so I, I always, I like to ask this question to people and I get different answers, but was Bob, was Bob always the, the persona and the, the person that you'd see on camera, you know, where he's brash and loud mouthed and, and funny and, very cocky or was that some of that was that a show well, i think from the competition standpoint that's clearly who he was you know and i think he i think the reason he was that way is it put pressure on him you know like he he was appalled by guys getting paid a lot of money and delivering nothing mm. like he couldn't he was that guy that couldn't live with himself if he took your money and didn't give you your money's worth Right. And so, you know, his, where he came from when he was, he was on his own, when he got into the motorcycling thing, living in the trailer in Lancaster, Palmdale, under an avocado tree, eating avocados and peanut butter, working at a welding shop. You know, I don't remember which one it was, but, you know, that's what he did. And when he got this ride, he was getting paid a thousand dollars a month or whatever. He, and at that time, that was a lot of money. And he's thinking, I got to take advantage of this. So he put everything he had into that. Plus, he was just a really, talented guy you know but really more talented he was one of the hardest working guys after he after he went through getting his butt whipped from the heat exhaustion and not being in shape he vowed that that would never happen again and it probably never did hmm. i mean he ran and ran and worked and rode and he his training schedule was not for the faint of heart you know and he thrashed bikes i mean i was practice bike mechanic we didn't have two or three guys supporting one guy we had one guy you know and so it was a lot of work and but it was worth every second of it because we, we both wanted the results and we got them yeah. you know and i think so. that's something that gets overlooked by by kids who just come into the sport today is that now you have an engine guy there's a yeah. suspension guy yeah. a guy that drives the truck uh a guy that makes you sandwiches i mean literally there's a guy for everything right. but back even all the way through to the mid 90s if you were the mechanic, you drove the box van, yeah. you broke that thing down to the frame every week, uh, you were the guy. I mean, there was someone that helped you set up suspension likely and, and they developed the engines, but you were the guy putting the new piston in, putting the clutch, you did it all. Yeah. So a lot of work for you guys. Yeah, and was, when you have a guy like Bob Anna who demands, you know, excellence, yeah. that's a lot of pressure. Well, on I mean, I used to get criticized because when we come to the races, the bikes weren't super clean. And the reason for that, I tell this story, like in Anaheim, well, I live in the city of Orange, just right down the road. And if you 
take Chapman Avenue east from Anaheim Stadium, essentially. Um, there are some hills right there now are filled with homes. In that time, in the 70s, there were no homes. We would go there Saturday morning before the race and ride, and he'd loosen up. He might even run over there and get on the bike and ride around. And, you know, we had drum braces those time, and when they, when, you know, they just, they needed to be bedded in, right? You can do your best to uh, put chalk and get them around, but the hubs would, would twist a little bit depending on the spoke tightness and stuff. So once you had everything seated and bedded, so right from practice, the guy could go. Mm. He liked that feeling. So he didn't really want me to get water and, you know, whatever other things that would start to change all that. So, you know, we would towel it off as best we could and knock the big stuff off. But we would go through tech with a dirty bike and he would go out there and be up to speed right away. You know, that's just was our deal. And we used to, the terminology we used after we was done riding, shrink wrap it. Like, don't touch it. Yeah. Just take it there. I don't care what it looks like. I want it just like this. Okay. Wow. So, you know, and everybody, I just say, I, I, I mean, I get what you're saying, but it's not going to change your, your, what you're doing. You're going to make the result. You know? Yeah. So, well, and yeah. I think I've heard you say that before is, in fact, we were chatting earlier, it's, Focus on the things that are going to affect the result first, right. and then all the other BS. Right, falls in place. Yeah, that's crazy. So Saturday morning, but Saturday morning, numerous times. I mean, everywhere we could, we would do that. Especially if he was a little nervous. I mean, that's the other thing. The guy, the mechanic, is kind of the psychiatrist too. You know. Yeah. I mean, every athlete's insecure. I don't care who you are or when it is. You go out there, you're a little nervous, and you need somebody to kind of. And be that little peptide guy as you remember all the things you've done together or whatever it is that triggers your guy and mm -hmm. you know we had that relationship and i think i brought that to him you know like mm -hmm. especially i remember a race this is a funny one in omaha nebraska we did some crazy stuff to the bike we melded a production bike in an ow and tried to take take the best attributes of both bikes and make one and we went to this race in omaha nebraska herman nebraska and um her racing Brigette was in our class and him and Bobby had these big sweeping turns that this two ruts came into one. And Bob and Brigette got into it a couple of times and Rick Brigette was a big pretty gnarly boy, yeah. right? And and uh, you know, I somewhere on the shot where I couldn't see, they came together and Bob punted Rick off the track and he got back to the truck there and he goes, Oh boy and he goes, I think uh I think Rick might be a little upset and I go, Well, just leave your helmet on, shut up and sit in that chair right there and I'll take care of it, you know. And it's like now I'm the bodyguard, you know, not only all these other things, but he did. He just sat in the chair with the helmet on in case Brigette was gonna get out of hand, but but it all was cool, you know, like yeah, but it's just those little things yeah. and so to know that somebody's gonna be behind you or, you know, in front of you to support you or whatever, that's the bond that you gotta have with your guy. You know? Yeah. Well yeah. I'm gonna I wanna talk about that. I've actually got a question about that because there is such a dynamic between rider and mechanic, especially back then. Yeah. I feel like now that's that there's a little bit of a disconnect, like I said, because there's so many personnel. Yeah. Um, but um you know, I wanted to ask, so that that habit you guys had of riding that Saturday, I remember I thought it was really interesting that Jeff Emig used to go out on Saturdays with mm. uh, Butler. Well, he probably heard this story. They probably heard this story because they were after Bob. Sure. I wondered if that, yeah, so did that have an effect? Because Jeff's just I, like... I, to, I can't remember. I mean, Steve, Steve Butler was a joy to work with and stuff, and so was Jeff, you know, I mean... I mean, we all wanted it. We had a great group of guys, Bob Oliver, John Rosenstiel, Steve, myself, you know, um, 
again, I don't know who else was in your Ron even may have been there at that time too, but just a group of guys that all wanted the same team or were willing to work their butts off, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, that doesn't surprise me going out there and just getting the jetting right, especially on the 125. If I'm not mistaken, we were making the needles by hand. Mm -hmm. And so to get them just right for the humidity, we used uh, air density gauges, you know, just to really tune them properly. And, um, you know, we didn't have electronics and fill injection and all that stuff. So it's quite a bit of, quite a bit of legwork and ch changing things. So, you know, that was what Saturday would be for, you know? Yeah. And, and like you said, especially on the 25, but even yeah. the Tibidi, jetting was yeah. everything. Yeah. And you'd be, especially back East, the humidity's changing, the, the clouds would come in. Right. It was a, it was really a job for those mechanics to keep the bike sharp, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I'm surprised more people didn't do that. And, and in fact, I wish I, think I some did. I think some think, you know, it's just not something that people talk about, but I mean, you know, and later we started doing it. We tried to go to the national trash and get a little ride on Saturday at the track. But, you know, again, comes into that fashion thing. Like yeah. you gotta rip the bike apart, wash it all. And, you know, it's not so for everybody. did you, so going back to Bob, um, I, I just can't get enough of Bob now. Yeah. I mean, he's such a character. Uh, did you guys ever butt heads over anything? Yes. You know, a very, very few times. But I remember, um, so we used to wrestle, like I said, a lot. And he, I, you know, I I hate to say it, but, you know, we used to take towels from the Holiday Inns and stuff to use on Saturdays and stuff, the small little hand towels. So my little stash was like my stash, you know. And I said, hey, if you need your own, go get your own, but don't take these because you're in the boss fan. This is all you got. Yeah. And I used to... Um, we would wrestle and I remember that uh, we had this thing. I used to do this thing like how you reset the Yeah, right. you know, one of those. And I had it where it was just like a raw spot there. And if I really got it good, it would bleed because it was just a scab. And uh, so we, we would roughhouse to that extreme, you know, where we're just making each other bleed and everything. And he got pissed because he'd have his HRP white t-shirts on. And if I got him down and did that, blood on the t-shirt track. So he'd be really, really mad at me about that. So, uh, uh, that's cool. you know, we just, again, there was nothing, nothing off limits, I guess, for that, you know, when we were rough house. Did you guys ever get into trouble? Any rental car stories or, or, uh, trouble no, with the law, that kind no, of stuff? Nothing that we ever really had to pay for, but you know, there was a lot of rental car, uh stuff you know i mean bob was bob was uh you know the stories about him some were very true he got sick i think the year before i was working for him in san diego san, san antonio he got food poisoning at some restaurant and he got so mad he climbed up on the roof and there was a big steel plate over the blower or whatever the exhaust and the thing and he rolled that plate over the top so the smoke just went inside and emptied the place out you know of the place that he got the sick in he got oh, sick in yeah you know so just he didn't want to. He didn't want to give him an opportunity to repay something, you know. Yeah. Because he was very, very revengeful. So I, I there was a story. Uh, Scott USA used to, whenever he'd win a championship, they would give you a week, a week ski trip in some valley and get you some elk skin jacket or hat, whatever you wanted, gloves, whatever you get. So we went on one of our ski trips there and. He was messing around with me. I don't even remember what he did, but something was pissing me off. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to just duct tape your ass together and throw you out in the snow. And uh, so I'm wrestling him, and I was bigger than him, you know, big enough to be able to do something. And and he got really pissed. So he was trying to, he, what he was trying to do is we were in a loft type thing with the bedroom upstairs, 
I'm sitting down there watching TV, and he's up on that loft. He made a noose, and you know, he, I can't tell you all the stuff he did to make this noose. He was going to like noose me and tie me up to that pole, and come down there and beat the heck out of me, you know, which he had done before a couple of times, rip shots. You know, he'd come off after a long day of driving, and we're just tired of one another when we were driving together. We'd be at a holiday, and he said, I bet you can't climb to the second story with just your fingertips in the bricks. And I'm like, you can do that. And just when you put your hands up there and go like this, and he dropped me just a rib shot, you know, and take, just knock you down. And I'm laying on the ground. He goes, I'll see you tomorrow morning, you know, and as he's running into his room. So just, you know, but I probably gave it to him too, the same yeah. way, you know. I got to the point where I, made sure that I wasn't going to hurt him too bad before the weekend, you know, or yeah. I wanted to feel something, but we, we just, we played hard, you know, it's that simple. We, we had great times like that. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so how did it feel? Um, you hadn't won a championship with a rider or you won with no, Tony D. Did this feel, Tony and did this feel any different with him? Um, it probably felt different because not for Bob, every time he got on the bike, he could win. And that's a whole different thing than when the guy just goes two two and gets an overall or or whatever one five. You know, you know, in those days, like big, big, big gaps, you could still get overalls. Not that Tony did that, but Tony wasn't quite as dominant as yeah, Bob was. No rider was quite as dominant yeah. as Bob Hannon was. He so was a force. He won like seventy six percent of the races that he entered. You know, when we were working together and stuff. So. So that changed a lot of things just on your focus. And I know I kind of regretted my career because I don't think I was real friendly with a lot of people. I mean, I was, but I wasn't. When the races were over, I was a little more docile, but and I had that same buildup of, uh, you know, um, Focus and intensity. Yeah, well, you know, like uh, insecurity too, right? Oh. Like, uh, you know, you're one, just you're thinking that I get this, I get that. And yeah. And uh, so, you know, but yeah, it was, it was fun, you know, no death, no question. I mean, a lot of great things came up with Ingersoll Rand. He used to give away tools to the winners at nationals. And, you know, just a lot of things went on, different promotions. And so if you're the winner, you get to take part in that. If you're not, then, you know, everybody else thinks you suck. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, to the victor go the spoils, they yeah, say, right? Um, so... Um, I, what I would say to you, you know, we could talk for days on things that we did, just different experiences. But what I would say is, you, you led this question by was Bob that persona that he seemed to be? For everything that you saw, the gruffness, he had a soft part in his heart as well, too. Okay. Super giving, really cherished his friendships with people outside of racing. Probably one, you know, one of the nicest guys at that time in my life that you would meet um, that was kind to other people, you know, mm -hmm. that he didn't have to compete against. If you had to compete against you, don't ask for kindness because you're going to get the real raw Bob Hammer. But if you, you know, are just out, you know, whatever, um, he's the guy that's going to pick up the tab. He's going to feel, he always thought like he had to do all these things. But super good guy. Hmm. Super good. Well, I think it speaks volumes that he's he's still really good friends with people that uh, he worked with, like yeah. yourself, like Eddie Cole. Yeah. You know, because a guy like him, he could disappear off in the woods, I don't, yeah. and, and yeah. he doesn't have to do that, right? I think that speaks about who he is. So uh, to that point, yeah, he's, he's got a soft center, right? Yeah. Definitely. Well, I'm, I work, we've been trying to get him on the show. He said he'd come if I'd buy his airplane fuel. Yeah. So we're working on <laughs> There you go. 
Um, well, you always know that where he is. I think that'd be more impressive. His yeah. place in Idaho is pretty awesome. Is it uh, Eagle or something up there? Uh, Caldwell's where it's at, though. And, you know, he, he's, you know, he's got a really nice house, you know, modest house, but nice, and pool and runway and his hanger and all of his toys and mm -hmm. office and everything. And just to see, here's what he put together, you know? Yeah. So he's, oh, he's, he's done good. I, I'm anxious to have him on just to talk about his, I think he had a lot of foresight um, setting himself up financially for the rest of his life way early on yeah. before guys were even yeah. thinking about that you know yeah um, and actually we ought to give a little shout out i hope he's doing okay he was in a bicycle accident um i don't know if you've heard about that um tried to jump a pothole on his road bike and oh yeah yeah yeah. well that delayed our our trip we were going this month actually we'd be there now but um he got hurt so we pushed it out to yeah. july but yeah he's doing well i think he'll be okay but yeah. i guess it was pretty ugly so yeah um any of those titles with him, is there one that stood out for you? Uh, that just The ones that stand out are the ones that we should have won that we didn't win. Is that right? Stand out. I mean, I think he would have won a 500 title, you know. I know he would have won it. Um, I think Marty won it, but he uh, should have won it. And uh, probably a one, a one, I said a 500, the 500 title and probably the 125 title probably should have been his too. You know? Was that Marty won? Or... Uh, one brought brought one okay so you know again those are the things as a mechanic yes of course the wins are awesome you know i don't remember all of them i don't know that one you know the probably one that really stands out that that was a big one was him bob winning at daytona when he had the flu and was thrown up right before and he just it's like that was a turning point for him the fact that he won at his lowest point reinforced that these guys don't have a chance when he's mm. his normal self mm -hmm. and that's that's kind of the thing is they always knew they were racing for second not for first so you know if you go out with that kind of confidence it's probably a really good thing well i remember him saying something you know like he'd make comments on tv uh mm. you know hey bob what do you think your chances are today and he goes well if those guys uh you know the only way i'm not gonna win is if they let the air out of my tires or something like i mean he would just right claim it yeah like i've never heard anybody do see why so you see get pissed at him it's okay if you beat us but you can't humiliate us you know <laughs> well that's what made him such a yeah. fan favorite though is right. uh he was just so outrageous with yeah. the stuff he'd say and then he'd back it up yeah, right he, you know i always thought man if he's saying that look out yeah because when he was also off he'd go ah you know i'm he, he'd call out on yeah yeah you know, he he never made an excuse for losing yeah he lost he said he lost and they were better than him today or whatever and he was a mechanical problem whatever he didn't make an excuse for it so that was yeah. that was pretty cool too I, i'm trying to remember was it 77 the um the 125 championship where uh glover and laporte yeah. and bob were battling yeah and at the opening round you guys um if i hang, if I, hang on i'm messing this up tell me but i think brock told us you guys had a water-cooled bike that was actually quite good but the claiming rule pushed you guys to uh, take that component out of it. Yeah. But the cases were still the same. And they got hot and something fell out. Anyway, it cost you guys some points. Yeah, that that it wasn't the engine on us. It was the chain guy who was one of the problems. Is I welded the thing. Like you said, in those days, we were everything, right? Yeah. I mean, when I, you talked about my transition to Yamaha, when I went to Yamaha, when I got my parts, they were in a box. I mean the cones of the pipe in the box, not a pipe. And so, you know, different things that we did, we were responsible. And at that time, that year, you could race 
125, 250, and 500. So Brock only rode 125, so he and his guy could focus only on that. We didn't have a team of 40 people working on everything. We had Shim Felt, Rod Lever doing 125s, none of which their stuff came to us. And so all of our testing, all our stuff we did on our own. And the same with the 250 and or 500, you know. So me doing all of those things, I gotta say, I wasn't the best welder at the time. And certainly that, that day, you know, was one of those days. So you, you know, you start when you, when you're thinking back, I can remember almost all of those bad days, you know, mm. why and when and how and, you know, they, they haunt you because you don't ever want to be that guy, you know. Well, as a racer, uh, we always, I'll, you know, even we'll remember our very best days, but you yeah. also remember those days. You're like, man, I just, if I would have done this different, I, that was a, such a screw up. And you never, if, I don't think any of us yeah. that are competitive, let that go completely. I think the ones that bother you the most, the ones that are, were in your control and not out of your control. When I worked at Suzuki, the steering stems were breaking. I mean, hey, yeah. I'm not the engineer. I didn't build that, you know, but I had to deal with it, you know, or the frames breaking or whatever went on. And so, you know, it's just different depending on your, perspective from the problem yeah was that a dnf that uh at hangtown that, yeah that kind of yeah i mean it had two of them i don't remember that i just know that first race passed us pretty much the championship mm -hmm. it wasn't a 12 race series it was much shorter so everyone was kind of important right and we had some other weird problems along the way too that you know i think we won i think at that time we had won more races than anybody but we dnf'd more mm -hmm. than them too so um, that was a hell of a championship with Laporte and yeah, uh, Hannah and Glenn. Yeah. Anybody ever wants Crazy to go back? How it all comes down to that one race. Yeah, yeah, it was phenomenal. Um, Again, a learning experience for me because as the mechanic and having a team manager that wasn't very prepared or didn't have a very good understanding on what his team was capable of and his riders, there was no preparation as to what might happen and what we should do. And consequently, we came out with the most photographed or most printed sign in the world, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that never should have happened like that. You know, he should have been able to say up front, you know. Sure. So that was a learning moment for me. Like, yeah, that, remember, that was your if I would ever do that, it was mine. And if I ever had to do that, we're not going to embarrass the hell out of everybody, you know, by being stupid. Yeah, and I, I guess I should ask your thoughts on that. I and mean, we, we did cover it pretty extensively in, in Laporte's show, but uh, that that is the infamous let Brock buy yeah. bit board that yeah. uh, it he needed to let Brock buy so that Brock could win because Bob yeah. wasn't gonna wasn't in contention, and it was either that happened or or Laporte wins the yeah. title. Um, yeah, what what was your take? I mean, you, know, you kind of just mentioned it. Well, like, it was disappointing. I mean, like I said, it all. Did just, you get an order to give that, yeah. or how, how did that go? Yeah. And who was the team manager that year? Kenny Clark. Oh, Kenny Clark. Okay. And did he did he give you those exact words, or how did that go down? No, he just, you know, it was like, I don't know, I didn't remember what he said. I mean, I'm sure it was a blur just because I was probably pissed, you know. And I, and I heard uh, after the race, Bob rode off into the woods and yeah. disappeared for like an hour and was yeah. was uh, yeah. distraught. I guess yeah. is the way to say. Yeah. Sure. It's not what he wanted to do. And that, that's yeah. an antithetical to everything that, that he believes in, right? I'm sure that was the hardest yeah. thing he's ever had to do. Yeah. Mm. That's that's interesting. Um, any, <laughs> I remember there's a picture of Bob uh, on a podium. It, I, maybe it's Unadilla, but I could be wrong with the venue, but he's got a trophy girl <laughs> up in his arms. Oh, yeah. You know, these are the days they were 
grab acid and kissing the girls. I mean, it was a different era. You're right. Uh, you'd be canceled immediately today if you did any of that, but it probably, it's so, he still tries to get away with it. That doesn't surprise me. But, no. uh, is there any podium antics or like stuff like that, that that sticks out for you? Well, I mean, all that, the things that you mentioned that they don't, there were so many of them. It's hard to, you know, afterwards they come by our truck and wanting to sign body parts and things. And, you know, just, it was like, just, it wasn't abnormal, but it wasn't, not every, every truck did that either. Sure. So it was kind of, uh, it was just Bob. It's who he was, you know, he, he'd, uh, yeah, you got someone there, you know, just so you can touch him or whatever, you know? And it wasn't just trophy people. I mean, my wife, when we were dating and everything, he's always messing around with her, you know, whatever, nothing bad. We used to have this thing. I'll tell you the story that, um, we were married and we had my, my daughter, his mom name was Christina okay. and she was always dressed to the nines and my wife just made her always look really nice. And every time Bob was around, he, he was uncle Bucky, you know? And so he'd go lift up your dress for uncle Bucky and she on cue, she <laughs> lift her up, you know? And so that kind of translated into when she went to kindergarten and all that, it was in the, these are the era where these preschools that were child molesters were coming mm -hmm. out. So they're questioning all the kids. And so they questioned my daughter and she says, well, my uncle Bucky asked me, my uncle Bob asked me to lift up my dress, you know? So next thing you know, we get a letter and we're like embarrassed and oh pissed. My, and my wife finally had to tell him, look, Bob, if you tell her to do that, she does it. She's getting a spanking just to get him to stop, you know? So I always wanted to do this thing where he was going to get subpoenaed by the school district. I had some friends that okay. break a very official oh, letter, you know, but I never did it. But that, you know, he was, he just, it was a prankster. He didn't yeah. mean anything by it, obviously, but man, or oh man, you know, he just, it's crazy, funny stuff. Well, and I mean, as a fan, I, I love the, the late 80s, mid to late 80s. You know, I was a kid just really looking up to those writers, Morty and O'Mara and Bailey and, and Hannah, but I, I, just when I look at the sport then versus now, there's some things that are way better, but the personalities then, yeah. because you could be like a Bob, you could, yeah. and, and, and he was one of a kind, but I, re I remember another race and maybe it's the same one with that trophy girl. He's, he walks her up and he didn't win. Maybe Bailey won. And he says something, they inter interview him and he goes, well, Bailey can win. I got my trophy right here. You know, I mean, he was just wild yeah. with the stuff he would do and say, and, and, I don't know if he was joking or not. Maybe he wasn't, but uh, anyway, he was hilarious. Just such a crazy guy. He was a personality for sure, and that's that's what every sport needs. Every sport's got one or two or three of them, you know. Yeah. So, you know. well, and, and I believe that um, that's what hooks people into a sport. Sure. You know, uh, I don't know if you've been following that that F one um, series that's on Netflix right now. I wasn't a Formula One guy, but you watch this series and you you get a look into the paddock and you get to kind of know some of these athletes. And it just draws you in, you yeah. know, when, when you can connect to a person and their personality and go, this guy's great. He's funny or he's this. Yeah. That's what draws in fans. Sure. And, I, and I feel like we miss that as a sport. Yeah. We, we've gotten to be very vanilla, you know, and robotic and, and not to, I'm not going to put any names out there, but you know, the people that are on yeah. the podium, you're like, I know exactly what he's going to say before he yeah. says it. And yeah. Um, even if they are professional, it's like, man, 
show some emotion one way or another. Yeah. Be real. Let us see who you are because that's and, how you get to the, the fans. Show, like when we would go to Carnegie Stadium or any of the stadiums back east, there's 60 or 70,000 people and they've got these hurricane flags that they've hung from the ceiling yeah. there, you know, that the fans brought. Yeah. You know, just um, they, that was a big deal. And the promotions group at the time, they took advantage of it. They had him in early, go to, you know, TV places and, you know, and he was just that larger than life personality. I really yeah. wanted to get around, you know. Yeah, and I, I sure embrace it when I see somebody. Uh, Jet Reynolds, or uh, sorry, Jet Lawrence reminds me a little bit of that right yeah. now. Yeah. Not not Hannah, but he's got that personality. Yeah, right. He's goofy and he's he's fun. Yeah. So anyway, I hope we see more of that. I'd love to see a little bit of that Bob Hannah come back. Um, tell me a little bit about your your prep, the difference between back then and now, like what you would do between motos. Because now, you know, they, they've got a full wash station set up behind the semi and they pressure wash it and you hook it up to a laptop. And, you know, it's like this whole thing. You, like yeah. you said, you didn't even have pressure washers. Yeah, I think, you know, it changed every, you know, I can take you back to a brand where in between the races, you'd be welding motor mounts, you know, and pulling the engine out, welding motor mounts back, put them back and, or whatever, just you know, every every bike took something a little bit different, mm -hmm. but it really was addressing whatever issues that he might have, if there were some, and if not, then, you know, um, you know, I think we didn't necessarily change tires all the time, so we'd be checking spokes, you know, um, hubs were fairly strong for the most part, depending on the track, so, you know, every time you went through chains have been good, you know, DID's been something I've used for my whole career and live and swear by them they're good and so just you know you learn the products that you're using and then that kind of leads you into what you got to do air filters are always a big deal Hangtown or Puyallup you know Washington super fine silt so you know take making sure you've got the thing really airtight and all that so things are going to leak by or changing the filter frequently you know just so every track had something unique and that's the good guys have their notes on what to watch for and what yeah. what problems they had, you know. I remember Unadilla's lots of rocks and we had this little bracket on our fourth leg. Two two years in a row, the bracket one time the bracket on the cable got broke off of the backing plate where you know the cable screws down in and adjusts. That old lug got broke off. And next time it was the lug at the top on the fourth leg. You know impossible to yeah. think what are the odds yeah right but yeah. both of them then lose your front brake you nearly and pretty much lost the race you know yeah. so i mean just so trying to look back and see what came your way or chain guides can be a problem with rocks and things getting bent or a rock getting in it or something so you're just constantly minimizing and looking at those things and um you know certainly one of the important lessons is just to stay focused in those days we had a lot of people that wanted to be around and talk in your ear and i think it was a trans am at uh, atlanta where my seat came off because we had these you know we had a lot of problems with the seats coming off the bolts packing up so i had an allen bolt which is stronger than a nylock net so it really couldn't come off if you tightened it up but if you just got the first couple threads it did and it could and uh so that kind of stuff, you know, just from somebody taking my mind off, you know, coming to ask a question or give me this or whatever. And, you know, so there were just things that you, again, wish you could go back and fix, but you learned by them and 
and try to figure out a way, like, how am I going to not let that happen again? You know? And I, it, so, you know, I chatted earlier too about some of the things I had heard about you. I've heard about you over the years. Mm. Yamaha was the one team I never rode for during my yeah. career. So I, I never got to experience working with you that closely, but they said, anytime there was an issue with any of the riders or any of the bikes, you would come in and go, okay, what happened? What caused it? And how do we fix this to never happen? You know, it was a chain and right. okay, well, how do we take this master link out of the equation? Let's press the chain. Right. Okay. Let's have a spec that we press it to right. these. I mean, you really addressed any issue to try to minimize right. what can happen. Well, that's and that's prevent. It wasn't even just, like, I mean, the, the thing happened. We want to prevent it and look, look forward. Don't wait for it to happen to have a solution, you know? Yeah. And that's it. That's that from the rug race teams. I put together here or from the motocross scene and a lot of people hated it because I said, listen, I'm pissed if you leave the racetrack without knowing what happened. Mm -hmm. That engine's broken, then pull it apart. We need to know and figure out what we're going to do before we leave because the next race is in seven days. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of time sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. So I know they didn't like my tone, but I didn't like the embarrassment of that happening, not just to me or the team, but for the rider. Yeah. In Christ, you throw everybody's, you know, hard work away for something silly like that you know yeah. so i mean again it's just the leadership and some people really took it and wanted it and understood it and then they used that bad guys that didn't like my approach and you came back going now i know why you did all the things you did when i'm in charge now it matters you know yeah so i mean i'm glad it resonates that way with people but I don't feel bad for any of it. I'm quite happy that I was smart enough to try to do it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So. What about mud races in those days? Like, uh, if you had just a swampy race, yeah. Well, you can't clean them. You're scraping it the best you uh, can. And when you go back to an air-cooled engine, that's one one mud setup. You know, we used to make these big flaps out of the inner tubes at that time when we had them, and they covered the top of the head, so it just can't take with mud. The air can still go through the fins and cool it. But an air-cooled, the water-cooled things, you know, you gotta protect the radiators whatever way you can. And there's numerous products out there that people have done with foam and or netting solutions or the little stockings that go over them, you know, or for a flat track, they use stuff on the spring so it vibrates the mud off, you know, it rattles a little bit, you know, so it's like we've done all of those things and you're going to use the one that was most effective for that type of dirt, you know. Back east, it's very heavy, sticky mud. Out west, it's very loose and kind of, Splashy. you know, yeah. yeah, watery or whatever. So you just got to roll with it. But I remember when you talked about that, you know, Dave Osterman, was one of our mechanics for Mike Bell and went on to be a team manager and stuff. And he used to come to us and say, I don't understand how you guys can be so calm at a mud race like this, you know, because you just kind of know what to do. You know, we would use Yamaha makes this really great waterproof crease. It's like just super stringy for their outboard things. And, you know, you'd pull your throttle apart and all the seams that, you know, they don't necessarily overlap. Well, you put grease all in there so nothing could penetrating you know, not sand or water or you know just all of the things that eventually came about where the end of the throttle tube was sealed so the water just can't come from the grip or you know yeah. so all these things evolved over problems arising and that's what we would do you know yeah. put the hand guards on if the rider was okay with them or crease or putting grease on the air filter in areas where you knew water was going to hit it mm -hmm. so now it can't penetrate there it still has enough foam to breathe somewhere else you know so i mean i i've forgotten all of these things that we did but they were 
we we would talk about them and everybody just would get in line and get it done. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's uh, in the fire service. We have a very similar thing. It's called the, the standing fire orders, and it's just things on a on a vegetation fire that you do or don't do, and there's no deviating from these. Right. And they all came to be from a line of duty death. Somebody who died because of this. Right. And so it's 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 different, but the same. Yeah. Something breaks yeah. because this happened. Okay. Well, then we do this. Right. Period. Like this is the new rule when we have these situations, these conditions. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting. And then the, how do you how do you ensure that that continues? You know, like when you retire, do you did you? I mean, is there anything you pass down to new guys, or is I mean, that just stuff you share I, while I you're think, there? I think it. It's just different styles of management. You know how some people don't want to be as hands-on. I think they always, I remember being at the road races, you know. So my history, just so we go back, when I was at Suzuki, there wasn't a whole lot of racing showing on motocross and supercross. So I filled in and went to road races. Mm-hmm. I went, Gary Nixon was one of the riders Suzuki had, and the Earth Cannon Moto, Moto super famous tuner was his guy. And so I used to go to the road races when there was no motocross and work with him and be his little uh, puppet guy, you know, just because I wanted to be that sponge. I was single and I just loved racing and all that. And I was gaining all this knowledge. And so when Yamaha had the road racing and I got in charge of it, I kind of drew a little bit back on that and used some of the thought processes on we got this bike, our original bike when I went in there was 35 pounds over the weight limit. When I left, we were under the weight limit. Mm-hmm. So we won nine championships in 10 years. They're still winning with the same basic premise and things that we did. And it was just, you know, things for me that are common sense, but that's, you know, when somebody's good at what they do, it looks easy to everybody else, right? But when they got to think of it, they can't put it all together. So I, I, never tried to force anybody i wanted to teach them but with the results mm-hmm. and that's how they all fall in line is when you start winning everything changes now they gotta listen to you yeah. but if you're losing and just it's like cancer inside a team and i always live by that you know when the road race team's winning it sucks the other guys along in the shop that want to do good and all that so it makes your job a lot easier you know in that regard, did you ever have a, a season or a stretch of years where the winds weren't coming? What was the yeah. toughest yeah. kind well, of stretch? I think I think we had a disparity that our support teams, meaning like the L&Ms and, and whoever were doing better than the factory team was, you know? And, you know, there's a big difference between the factory side and the private side. Private side is a lot. We always used to, first of all, say racing has to have a very short snake. When the, when the head moves, the tail moves right along, right? But a really long snake, meaning bureaucracy, the head moves and it takes a long time for the tail to catch up. So the private teams are much shorter snakes than the factory teams. You know, we got to talk to our company and across the globe or whatever, or we within our own big company where these private guys, they can make decisions on personnel and direction and, you know, purchasing things. So those influence everything downstream of that, you know? Mm-hmm. So we did go through this spell for a lot of reasons. People really weren't doing their job the way it needed to get done. And we couldn't do a whole lot about it because of this big, process you know and which is so fr- gotta be so frustrating it, because it just destroys you and you're just you know then you get a little bit crazy and you know verbal and trying to make people understand like this is on you you know kind of but some people want to accept it and others don't you know mm-hmm. so yeah we did go through some times and 
and again, you know, they're all, they're all, you just gotta keep believing in yourself. And, and, uh, for me, especially the guy at the top where I've got one side over here, that's just remarkable how the people are working together and things are getting done and you're just able to, it's so seamless and easy And this other side that, you know, it's a a bike out of a truck is a struggle, you know, or, or getting everything that's the truck that we need, you know, it just was night and day. And so, you know, it kept me up a lot. That was the other part about retiring when people say, I don't wake up at two in the morning with this thought going through my head on what I got to deal with, you know? And so now it's somebody else's issue. It, it, that The snake analogy is actually pretty interesting. And I wonder if, um, you know, when you look at the, the rapid ascension of KTM as a group, mm -hmm. because they are a much smaller organization than a Yamaha, yeah. than a Honda, yeah. they were able to make those changes sure. quickly and adapt and, yeah. and take and advantage of some rules. And, and I think the other side that, you know, them as a company are much smaller and they produce much, many fewer bikes than say Yamaha. So Yamaha looks at this big picture, global picture with a YZ, they've got to make these small adjustments for across the globe. Mm -hmm. KTM's world, because it's smaller, they can make these adjustments that they need to much quicker. And and they may be a little bit more racing oriented than they are production oriented, right. more than Yamaha. Yamaha might be a little more production oriented than racing oriented. So you get those two things happening for sure. And Roger being the mastermind have been through all of this. He's got great people working for him and he's only worrying about one thing, motocross, right? He's not, not worrying about supermoto and road racing and side-by-sides and whatever else mm -hmm. they can throw at you. Um, you know, they've done a fantastic job organizing and, you know, with the look and the consistency and, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating, but it's understandable completely. Yeah. I, I love the, the snake analogy because I think it's, it's absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> So when you, you did uh, 77, 78, 79 with Bob or 77? All the way through 81, from 77 to 81. Oh. I think at the time we were like the longest duo out there, you know, from, from those years. Okay. So, so you, 81 was when you got earlier, 80. I think 81 was our last year. And the one race we won, and I'll remember this, because Yamaha was going through one of those spells you talked about when he hurt himself. Mm. The bikes, uh, you know, Brock and Mike were the development guys, and they were both much bigger than Bob. So the bike went okay in a straight line, but didn't corner with the with beans because they all wanted this real tall bike and never settled in the corner. And our all of our stuff, we always focused on the lowest bike we could have to manage, you know, bottoming and things like that. And it would just turn on the dime and give you nine cents change. That's what yeah. we wanted. And you needed to be a little stronger upper body strength because those bikes tend to want a knife a little bit more. So today, most guys are, ah, oh, it's just, you know, it's whatever. There's some reasoning instead of them getting strong enough to manage it, you know, to yeah. do that. So if you watch Cooper Webb, that's one thing those guys, he can go inside of everybody anytime he wants and still accelerate. So, you know, I'm sure Roger had something to do with that reminding those guys you gotta use the whole track not just that lie yeah. you know well and that goes back to even dungy if you in his yeah. ktm heyday he would turn inside sure. of everybody sure. and carry the same speed and yeah. you're like wow yeah so so you know it's just uh but yeah the last race was in 1981 at saddleback on my wife and i's anniversary april 5th oh wow so a friend of mine i gave my I had one of those because his mom was a baby we had this 
VHS, you know, two piece, big camera and a box. And they went around and recorded with the stuff that Pipeline Digital put from the Massacre at Saddleback. That was my tape. Oh, our yeah. footage was from our, our camera stuff. You still have all that? I don't, I think I, I probably have a copy of that. I don't, I don't know if I have, so I, I think I gave the tape to him to use, but. I don't know. I, I don't know if I do or not. Timmy tried to get it on DVD, but oh wow, that's cool footage. It was, it was a great, it's a great day with uh, who was the good announcer in the background? Uh, shit, who was the name? It wasn't Larry, but it was somebody who was really good. And he had to use all the little trick phrases. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, who was there? Larry Huffman and uh, I want. I keep pointing. Oh, I'll think of it. Anyway, okay. Um, so you were with him when he broke his leg. Yeah, during that, that yes. was eighty. May was 1980. Okay. It might have been the end of 79, turned into like a 13 or 14 month injury because yeah. he got infected. So I think we won. So I'm trying to think if he heard it before the motocross season, because maybe I think we won the motocross in eight and nine and the supercross 77, 78, 79. So it must have been in the first part of eight, at the end of the 79 season. Yeah. Mm. And was that, was that tough for you? I mean, uh, what, what were you doing there yeah. the whole time? Well, actually, I was actually helping Mike Bell. Hmm. If Mike were here today, he would tell you that, you know, we were out testing a 395, just me and him driving home in the box van. And I told him, I said, do you really want to win this Supercross championship? You know, and he said, yeah. I go, then you need to not take a vacation here. You need to, from right today, work on this thing till we get there and you know you got to be ready at the first race you just can't you know can't wait till january to start working here you know and he took it to heart and he told me he goes that conversation changed my whole life so just i was kind of in the background all these guys kind of helping and everything but you know we had a lot of talented guys yamaha's never been you know sacrificed the talent but sometimes the heart is where they Need a little bit bigger push, you right? Know? Well, or a guy they respect who's had who has the success to yeah. say, "Hey, yeah, you're missing the mark right here." Yeah, I never saw. I never at the time. You don't feel that way today. I understand the importance of it, but then I just felt like I was being the guy I should be. You yeah. know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. I, I breaks my heart thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. Know? Um. So when you came off the road with Bob, what role did you transition into? I was kind of like their supervisor. I was doing suspension stuff, going to San Jose. We were flirting around with some other stuff, but I know we were, that Mahav Rockless engineer named Stephen Doy, and he later became a VP at Yamaha, but at that time, and they told him, you go to the United States and you don't leave until that bike's winning again. Cause we actually had a OW program, and uh, but the bike was very heavy, the chassis was messed up, just didn't really handle well. And that was our whole existence was trying to, we were making all these new frames, trying to get something that he could ride. And that whole thing at Saddleback where Bob rammed Howerton and, you know, that he won, we ended up winning, but that was a fiasco. And really we probably shouldn't have won. Like Bob won that race on heart and determination, not because we fixed every problem that bike had, you know? Yeah. Because it wasn't the fastest bike, but it was the heaviest bike, you know, and, uh, it wasn't fast, but it sure had a like, yeah, you know, and it was okay, Hanley, but it wasn't what it needed to be. It wasn't yeah. what, you know, he was racing against. So it seems for light, they handled, 
And, they, and when you add that, they accelerate good and all kinds of good things. Sure. So, but you know, he won. And then that guy ended up getting to go home. And we were working like in my garage. I mean, he'd be over there drinking whiskey. Ah, come out the now. What are we going to do, Kisa? I mean, you know, like, oh, we got to line this pig up. You know, that's what we're doing. And what were you guys doing back in those times to lighten it up? I mean, drilling, drilling holes. stuff, you know, finding different materials. We, was there carbon fiber back then? Yeah, there was, but, uh, you know, it wasn't as prevalent as what what's there now and you know we were you know using more aluminum than steel where we could they had some pretty cool steels that they could really make very thin wall back in japan had a line on so we did a lot that we could but just the basic design seemed like at the time yamaha wanted four nuts and bolts where everybody else could do it with two you know or just in the, the design of the parts was just tough you know and I mean there were some good things like I remember when I came from Suzuki the transmissions were they looked like baby pieces but they were very strong okay. and Yamaha's were these giant gears and things and you know I'm sure that that material probably wasn't quite as good so it had to be bigger to be as strong so there's a lot of little things like that going on but you know eventually they're getting in or got it and they you know they can do a better job but it was tough I don't know that we ever resolved everything. Mm -hmm. Did did uh, titanium and magnesium was was there those kind of nuts and bolts yeah, parts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, they're not the answer. They're just uh, they're they're part of they're part of the yeah. problem. They're part of the solution. Yeah. But pretty small, you know. How would you say, uh, let's say, late seventies, early eighties, even nineties, the involvement between Japan and the U.S. Uh, versus today? Is there the same sort of uh, back and forth and communication and sharing of information and support? Yeah, I think for Yamaha, it started really good when we had full works equipment. In the U.S. and most everybody went to production rules. The racing departments kind of went away in, in, in the state that they were. In Japan? In Japan. Okay. And they, but they stayed there for road racing. Road racing's always had that kind of luxury, you know, big, big, big groups. And then... Then slowly the production team started getting involved with the racing more because that's what was going to sell bikes. They could use the racing wins, a direct, you know, sales uh, support for selling a production bike because it was a production bike. So from everything, from the look and the way it worked and everything. So Yamaha, you know, got pretty good, but now it's probably ramped up a little bit more. People want to win and, you know, the racing groups are, a little bit stronger than what they were then and, and these things change you know like kind of like the political climate one guy gets our president our cash is go down new guy comes in and they go up same thing happens at these companies something that's very racing oriented things unlock and more things good things happen and then another guy comes in and he reduces the budgets and you know it's just you just don't know so it's an ebb and flow of support you know? and is that just the the president but in japan at the time or wherever if he's a fan of racing or not or is it is it sales related you know net profit related yeah, i think it's lower than just the top guys in japan i mean they definitely say the final yes or no but it's all of the subsidiaries that are responsible they get to decide the direction you know it's a big snake like you it's said it's a big snake yeah. exactly hmm. And, you know, but when they make a decision, it takes a while for it to be implemented. Right. Too, you know, it's just interesting. Like over the years, um, I'll use Honda as an example in the eighties, 
you could tell they just were really passionate about racing. They put a massive amount of money into it. They committed to 10 years and the budget was funded for that period of time. They got the best people they could get at the time and they did a remarkable job. And then, but then you see when the next guy comes in or, or that uh, same philosophy isn't carried on for the next decade right. and you see the, the results, you yeah. see the um, bike performance, you see all of it yeah. go down. And I, I just find that very interesting that there isn't a... Well, it's tied to, I think it's kind of tied to the sales, right? So racing is a function of marketing these days. Mm -hmm. So if sales are off, then budgets are off. And you take percentages of total sales into the marketing and then how the marketing, what part goes to racing, then that's kind of why you see the constant movement, you know? Okay. Yeah, needed, back then, there was more of a commitment from a shared expense from Japan, I'm guessing from Honda, and their U.S. sales group, and they could flatten that that little cycle a little bit, and so they knew what they were doing. But you have to do that, you know. Either salaries are big, you make a big commitment. You know, Ken Rockson's salary, you know, it's huge, right? Five years, a couple million dollars a year, there's $10 million yeah. you're looking at, you know. Well, I always, it's another uh, question I'd, I'd love to know is, let, let, you know, take any race team. You're paying these these athletes so much money. It's which, which they deserve. I'm not saying they don't. Exactly. You've got all the expenses of taking all these guys to the races. All the, I mean, it's a a massive amount of money in a budget. How many bikes do you need to sell? And that's just U.S. racing, yeah, right. right? Like there, right. there's that, there's that. There's a global situation, right? So, how many motorcycles do you got to sell to to not just to get even? Yeah. Never mind profits i can't i can't personally believe that with just motocross models yeah you're making that up yeah you're not so do they just write that off as marketing expense well, they would spread it out you could spread these things out they that's why they, they have a lot of product lines mm -hmm. and you know we have atvs atv supported you know our racing efforts for a lot because motorcycle was down but that's kind of how these businesses that have multiple uh, profit centers, they can all help one another. Everybody's going to have a downtime, right? Sure. So they try to flatten that out with, hey, this year you're the big guy, so you're going to put a little bit more over here. But when it's motorcycles time, they're going to pay you back. They're going to do this. So you just kind of moves around, you know. But yeah, it's when you think about how big is the budget, really? Could they really sell enough bikes? Not really. No way. So, you know, but again, what what moves the needle? What makes Yamaha's brand what it is? If you close your eyes and say Yamaha, what do you think about? You know, you know, you might think about a wave runner, but you probably don't. You, know, you probably don't think about a jet boat, but maybe you do. Think about a blue bike now or whatever, you know, whatever era you came to. Sure. For some people, it's shallow and black, you know. Yeah. So well, it's and that's that would be an interesting question for folks on the street. Yeah. You know, close your eyes. Yamaha, what do you see? Because yeah. for us, obviously yeah, it's all their bikes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, so do you think it's actually true? You'd be a guy who's seen numbers that what wins on Sunday sells on Monday. Yeah, absolutely. Is that right? So I'll give you an example. So when I got into the road racing or took over the road racing, Yamaha sold an R1. It never won the shootout. It was fourth or fifth on the sales list, um, for all thousand CC sport bikes. We started winning within two or three years. That bike won shootouts was the best selling 1000cc sport bike. And the only thing that changed was our winning races. Mm. So I know it works. Wow. Kind of depends on, you know, how well it works. Well, if you take the best selling bike, motocross bike and start winning, does that fix, does it make it sell twice as many? 
you know, did it, did it help Kawasaki when Ricky or James or any of those guys, they didn't get the bump. They were still number three or four in overall sales from anybody. Yeah. So it's not, you kind of, you know, there's a right place to pull the trigger and wrong, but there's other things that you can do to really help, help it help you. you sure. So I know it works, but again. But there are uh, exceptions. I mean, I look at Suzuki during there was a run when Ricky was there. Ricky, yeah. then Reed, yeah. then Dungey. Yeah. They want everything. Yeah. They they want a lot. But and just, like I said, you can't even, you know, that that's that snake, you just can't turn it all around. Right. You know, number one. I mean, Yamaha, the other thing is like the brand, the bigger that brand, like Yamaha is a huge international name, not just for motorsports, but musical things as well, right? Mm -hmm. And watercraft, yeah, like they're like the Honda guys or whatever. Suzuki's not that kind of company, mm -hmm. nor is Kawasaki. Or were they? They may get there, but they through the seventies and eighties, they weren't that kind of company. Sure. So I think you know, again, Yamaha's done a fantastic job in a lot of different things, and that's why they, you know, they're as strong as they are. Mm, awesome. Um, hey, we're gonna take a quick break. I've kind of got caught up in here. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back with more Keith McCarty. Summer's coming. Are you ready to unveil your beach bod? Manscaped is here to ensure your body is ready for the wild with their game-changing full-body grooming and hygiene products. Don't be the guy at the beach with Austin Powers' chest hair if you grew some winter man tits. At least you could do is make sure they're hairless. It's time to get ready for hot guy summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code WHISKEYTHROTTLE. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you increase your confidence and level up your full-body grooming game with the Performance Package 4.0. The kit comes with the Essential Lawnmower, the 4.0 version. It's waterproof, cordless, uh, and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your grooming routine. So whether you're trimming your chest or the treasure chest in your pants, this is the best trimmer on the market. Their trimmer features a ceramic blade designed to cut hair on loose skin and to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin-safe technology. You can even trim an arrow pointing to the promised land if you're bold enough. Inside the performance package, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer because we know how painful chafing can be when you're wearing your bathing suit all day. No one likes nose hairs, so their package comes also with the Weed Whacker 2.0. You also get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. These things are super comfy. I'm not even a boxer guy, and I, I like to sleep in them. They're great. If you're wearing sandals, you need to get the Manscaped Shears 2.0 Nail Kit. Uh, look, we don't need a scene like, uh, you know, Dumb and Dumber where it's taking a, some type of rotary saw uh, and a bunch of sparks flying. The Shears 2.0 Nail Kit gets you tuned up. Very easy. Having the right tools for grooming is essential, so do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. So here it is. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code WhiskeyThrottle at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping using our code WhiskeyThrottle over at manscaped.com. Trim your chesticles with the besticles. See you at Manscaped. There's a new product on the market that's going to help you with your riding and racing, and it's Elevate Action Sports. If you've not yet gone and checked it out at elevateactionsports.com, it's a collective of riding coaches, the likes of which has never been put together. Grant Langston, Ryan Hughes, Jeff Emick, Johnny Campbell, and myself, David Pingree, bringing all of our years of experience in professional racing to one place with professionally produced videos, 
and all kinds of supporting staff to help you with your mental side of racing, your physical side, your bike setup, your bike maintenance. We cover it all. Get to Elevate Action Sports right now and join the community. There's a reason every AMA championship in the past decade was won on Dunlop tires. They are the best. Choose the best performing tire and a brand that has never wavered in their support of our sport. Choose Dunlop. Pro Circuit. Pro Circuit products are designed with one goal in mind, winning. Through passion and hard work, Pro Circuit has operated the most successful 250 team in the history of the sport. They use that same formula when developing exhaust, engine, and suspension parts for every brand. When only the highest level of performance is acceptable, trust Pro Circuit. Since 2009, Seat Concepts has been dedicated to making the best aftermarket seats. More comfort, more grip, more riding. For 10 years, we've continued to raise the bar. Innovation and American craftsmanship make Seat Concepts the world-leading manufacturer of power sports seats. Something from nothing. That's what Nihilo Concepts is about. It starts with a spark, an idea, a concept, which leads to a design and finishes with engineered excellence with the highest quality products created with durability in mind. All our products are made in the USA at our state-of-the-art facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you are a weekend warrior, ride for fun, or at the highest level of competition, Nihilo Concepts offers innovative titanium, aluminum, and carbon fiber parts for your dirt bike. We offer a wide variety of products that you can customize to your liking. Browse our site for foot pegs, brake tips, engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, lever grips, carbon fiber components, motor stands, our secondary on-switch, plus much more. Head to NihiloConcepts.com and see for yourself why factory teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs Gas Gas, Orange Brigade, Club MX, KLM Gas Gas, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nihilo Concepts. Specialized Bicycles. Specialized leads the way in the world of bicycling. Whether it's cross-country racing, downhill, e-bikes, enduro, road, gravel, dual slalom, dirt jumping, or all mountain bikes that do it all, Specialized has the perfect ride for you. The brand is synonymous with engineering excellence and innovation that steers the industry. Visit your local Specialized dealer for a test ride and see just how good Specialized products are. With a rich history in motocross, ProX has been dedicated to supplying quality components since 1975. Whether you're rebuilding an engine or just need a new chain, ProX Racing Parts aims to bridge the gap between OE quality and affordability. ProX has over 9,000 part numbers and over 60 different product types that are manufactured by highly reputable or even OEM suppliers and are offered at affordable prices to help keep riders on the bike instead of in the garage. 
Visit ProX.com to search parts for your bike or check them out at your favorite online or local dealer. The guys are just breaking in their race bikes, which will leave on the semi this Saturday to go to the first Supercross for our coast in Orlando. Uh, so the guys are just be goofing off a little bit, do some cool photos, do some cool videos. When you go racing, you want to do well, but a big key is keeping the bikes on the track. That's why we chose to work with Motul. Expectations coming in as a rookie is just to try and get my feet wet and uh, honestly just send it, see where I end up and uh, do my best out there, but just ride aggressive and ride like myself in practice and I uh, should have a good time. Challenges of this sport, I believe, is just simply staying healthy. Uh, with how fast we're going um, and what we're doing, your margin for mistake is really, really small. Stay sick. If you have little rippers, then you have had to have seen Stay Sick Bikes by now. We have created bike and experiences that allow kids to develop sooner and empower them to find their own ride. From learning to ride to sharpening skills, the Stay Sick promise is accelerated growth. Whatever path your family chooses, it's going to be the ride of your life. Stay Sick Stability Cycles. vacation every single day because i love my occupation hey i'm on vacation if you don't like your life then you should go and change it all right welcome back everybody that was your troyley designs timeout get over to troyleydesigns.com look at all of their the new line of motocross gear is out mountain bike gear the paint department's cranking get over there and check out what they've got going on and um uh, it's amazing stuff uh okay back uh, back here to keith I was looking through just some of the names that Yamaha has had since you've been there, and I can't list them all. It's 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 an astronomical list, but I mean, Mike Bell, Rick Johnson, Stanton, Emick, Bradshaw, Reed, Stewart, Burgett, Glover, Cantaloupe, Stanton, Ellis, Semix, Kehoe, Bowen, Holly, Diamond, Dubach, uh, Jeff Ward even at a time rode Yamahas with you guys, uh, Kalos, Lusk, Dowd, Henry, Langston, Ramsey, Fonseca, Plessinger, Martin Webb. It's crazy how many guys you've worked directly with uh, through the factory team, through Yamaha of Troy, through the other satellite teams. Um, well, I mean, wow. What, what do you, does that ever just, uh, there's just not a lot of guys that can say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's overwhelming for sure. And, you know, all of those guys um, are, are fairly close. You know, I mean, you want the best for them. You're providing an opportunity for them to be successful and uh, make something that uh, will, be with them for the rest of their life and uh you're hoping they're taking full advantage of it some do some don't but uh just even if they don't even if it doesn't you know i would i just always felt like my job is to get the best out of them that they can give whatever that is you don't, you don't really know and if we were able to do that then you feel good if we weren't able to do that then you you, you take that a little bit harder because you just couldn't find that key to unlock them you know and but the friendship part of it their families and everything, you know, with every rider, there's three or four layers behind them too. And that's been great as well, you know? So, um, yeah, very fortunate for sure. And, and yeah, and you, it's, it's, I, I wonder if you ever at, at times during your career or now that you've retired, just kind of, kind of go, wow, it, it sort of hits you with the gravity of it. How, how many people you've worked with these yeah. legends of the sport and yeah. you've gotten to know them on a personal level. Was there ever moments where you're just like, 
this is crazy. Like how, how, how fortunate am I, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, I always think I was, I think I had the best job in the world. I tell everybody I've lived, you know, five lifetimes, you know, yeah. and uh, some people don't get to do one fifth of what I've been able to do with the job and traveling and working in different disciplines and how it's going through, you know, when I left Yamaha, I got boxes of stuff that I took and some pictures. And by the way, I'll get you some scrapbook stuff. I just didn't have time to get it. But I, I had a pamphlet that we did for Supermoto and um, it was, you know, uh, Brandon Curry and Doug Henry and Mark Burkhardt and Rick Williams. He works for Graves Motorsports. He was like the team manager of the team at the time in Chuck Graves. And when we were getting to go to all these things and do Supermoto, that was the really a fun time for a sport that never really got to where I think it should have gotten, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah, I just was thinking back on that or the Baja, I was telling these guys during the break, um, doing the Baja 1000 on the Yamaha Banshee, uh, you know, that what a, what a, what a thing that was, or the super bikers, you know, yeah. and all of these things kind of pulled our racing group together to do things they never would have thought they were going to do and we were successful at it you know yeah. so it was one thing the camaraderie to the winning of it and just the whole experience going yeah i always felt like there's nothing we couldn't do given the time and a reasonable budget to get it done you know it's just yeah. it, was, it was good it's been fun i guess i totally forgot about supermoto but you were you were very involved in that it almost blends you know your two passions which right. is road racing and right. motocross and right. it is big thing and it did uh i was there for a little run of that and yeah. i love that sport yeah. people i did just it's so sad to me the way it, it petered out between yeah. the economy and some of the red bull dollars getting misused or mismanaged or however yeah. that went but what a cool sport for a little while huh? and i always looked at it for you know the the motocross and supercross promoters did a great job promoting and developing athletes and their names and their personalities and supermoto was that place where it could extend all of those already uh built you know entities into if they really if they wanted to do that by maybe by that time most of them wanted to get out you know especially the guys that were successful they probably thought they had enough money but it was pretty cool watching Doug Henry and guys like Mark Burkhardt and, and, and Troy Lee and yourself. And, yeah. you know, there's a number of people that was just fun getting out there and doing that. So, well, the, the fact that you could do them anywhere, the Queen Mary yeah. event, right. uh, with the one out at the Morongo Casino, yeah. yeah, you could just, you could make them really cool no matter where you were. Yes. Um, and I want to actually, let me pick your brain on this because one of the things that I think hurt that sport, and I don't know how you'd fix this. Uh, and like I said, there was multiple avenues that hurt it all at one time the economy probably being the worst yeah. but i feel like when it started out you'd get pastrana you get the bostroms nikki hayden came and rode with us right. at x games one year um every motocross guy you name it reed mcgrath uh henry they would all come and so you you have a built-in fan base because right. all of those fans are going oh man cool something something different but with right. guys i already know and love but as the sport specialized and you had Cassidy Anderson and you had Mark Burkhardt and Phil Moore and those, those guys, they weren't really household names. Right. And then they started beating the heroes. Right. right? And then pretty soon those guys are going, well, I'm not going to show up and get right. talent. You know, like, right. I'm not. Who is this guy? Right. Yeah. And um, they were legitimately good. And shoot, I mean, 
one year at the X Games, I got a third and I beat I beat Jeremy. I beat a lot of these guys. Right. And I go, oh man, right. I can't believe I just did that. But I was focusing on that, right? And they're they're still racing motocross yeah. and stuff. So I think that hurt it. But I don't know how you'd ever stop that. Yeah. Well, I I I don't know that you can. I mean, there were certainly a lot of talented kids that just never had that opportunity. And when they were there, they beat the the name brand guy. You yeah. know, then uh, I don't know. That's that for me, for me, it was, it was back because those guys no longer wanted to come, but it was great for the sports to go, man, just as anybody's game, you don't know who's sure. going to win, you know? Yeah. But they could have won too. I think it just comes down to, they didn't necessarily want to work that hard, or maybe they didn't have the best stuff like they did in their own sport, you know? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of that too. But um, again, if you want to work hard and, you know, just and worse at it, I think it was there for your taking. Yeah. Well, it was so neat. The, the um, rivalry between like the, the Troy Lee Honda team and the Graves Java yeah, Hudson right. team and Carrie Hart's team, you know, there was yeah, all right. these different uh, entities. Right? Yeah. And we, and it, we raced hard, but the thing that was the coolest to me, it reminded me of eighties motocross. Yeah. I mean, it was a battle, but then afterwards, you know, the fun, right. Everyone eating brats back right. at, uh, who was the KTM guy? Um, from Wisconsin. Oh, um, um, I'm brain farting on his yeah, name. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember Just anything. great people. Yeah, right. And everybody was friendly. We'd go to eat. It was like, man, this is the way motocross should be right. still. But it, I think as you introduce more and more money, things get more serious. Yes. You lose some of that fun. Anyway, I sure love that sport. Um, I wanted to pick your brain on this. So we had Dave Arnold on um, earlier this year. And I think you two... Maybe there's another couple of guys, but I, I put you two on this level of, of look, like all these names I just read that you've worked with. And I think he does the same thing with right. Ryder. I mean, yeah. he, he yeah. worked through that incredible era yes. there at Honda. And he told a story about how they signed Rick Johnson. Um, and I, wa I wonder if you were privy to that, how that worked out, because uh, the story goes that uh, they did not have permission from the brass at Honda to hire another guy, but they wanted him so badly that he and Roger went down and just signed him. And uh, as they're upstairs, Dave Arnold says he's sweating bullets. He's handing the the top Honda guy the contract, waiting for him to just read him the riot act and either tell him no or or you know let him have it. And while he's sitting there, somebody at Yamaha calls, and it's all in Japanese. And they're he says he's blah, 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 you know it's talking, and then he hangs up and he goes, "Fuck those guys! Give me the contract and signs it." You know, like the guy was yelling at him for stealing Rick Johnson, right? Do you, were, were you, I didn't, I wasn't involved in that. I, I, I heard something about that. You know, like there was that thing that we were never really supposed to know about the, you know, the agreements between them all. But, um, but I, I could believe that's probably the way it went down. Yeah. I just so, thought, and Rick didn't even know Rick goes, yeah. so my contract was no good for the first two days. <laughs> yeah, right. I just thought it was a hilarious story. Um, so all of those people that I, I read out that you've worked with, and this is only, this is just a fraction of them. There's yeah. so many more. Are any of those guys, any any of them that stand out to you as, um, I don't know, personally on a personal level or just a, a exceptional athletes or people? You know, Doug Henry is one that will always be close to me just because we've been through so many things, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, he rode for us in the, on the 125, two-stroke thing for, through Downer Shrove Yamaha. And then he was noticed by Honda, rode for them, got hurt, you know, whatever went through his ordeal. And then he, um, you know, came back for us and um, did the supermodel, rode the four show thing in Las Vegas, you know. He, he just was so resilient, but then, you know, kind of had these 
things that always seem to happen to him. And so just, you know, when you go through these injury things, they, you tend to get closer to them because you feel bad. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, I said before, you're pushing them to get the best out of them and then something goes wrong and changes their whole life. And so, you know, he'll always be special to me and Jimmy Button, obviously same thing. Um, but you know, there's a lot that, that motocross list, there's a lot of really good guys. Bob Hanna's always been really close to four guys during that period, you know, Bob, Brock, uh, Rick Burgett, and um, I don't think that were the three guys, I guess I would say, because for over that two or three year period, they were dominant. We won all these classes. You know, you see, we used to wear this ring. We had this championship ring that our boss made, and that was because Yamaha swept all the classes and playing Supercross in that year. And, and it was kind of cool, you know, and the stories about the ring brought got his stolen or lost it and then he got it back and I got mine. And then the mechanics got diamonds and all, all the riders did. But I told Kenny Clark, I said, Hey, if we win again, can I have a diamond? He said, yeah. So we, Bob and I ended up winning our thing again, both classes. So Kenny took his ring, took the diamond out of the bit, put it in mine and got a bigger one for himself, you know? <laughs> Like, bigger carrot, bigger carrot, yeah. So I, I've still got mine. You do. Cool, yeah. What a cool, yeah. what a cool keepsake. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So just you know, again, I'm sure they're all still very close, but um, you know, some of the ones you've gone on to work with are special too. You know, for other projects. Is there? Because um, you know, when I was at TLD, we had uh, we had hired Christian Craig as a fill-in rider, mm -hmm. and he went out. It was the last day we were riding our own line bikes before we started on the 2010s and this bike was well within its service hours yeah but it popped it snapped a valve yeah. and that's when he broke his back if you i don't know if you recall that and i was there that day and it was just for the for the mechanic who built the bike who's an awesome mechanic yeah um and all of us i mean it was just devastating like it's so hard that when you go yeah. man i know it wasn't our fault but that was our bike right and he did nothing Take wrong. responsibility it's very heavy and so i yeah. think about doug at bud's creek when he uh that four stroke yeah, broke and he did his wrist or does that, yeah. you know, I don't know what other incidents you may have had in the, in that scenario, but like, does that weigh heavy on you or were those? Yeah, it does. Especially during that time you try to let it go. You know, the story that probably of all of the funny stories, I remember being a red bud with Doug and, um, that was always a really tough. So I think it was red bud. And so his eyes on the outside of the turn and he crashed and knocked out his front cheek and he's on the ground. You know, kind of making this very crazy noise, like blood screwing. That's what I'm thinking. I'm going, Dad, Dad, are you okay? And he's going, Fit. And I'm like, What? And he's going, Fit. And he looks, I go, What are you doing? He goes, I'm looking for my tooth. And we find the tooth and he gets up and gets some milk and put it in. So I stick it back in. I guess, yeah. you know, it's like, you're just going, Holy shit, that's okay. If it's only a tooth, I'm okay. Yeah, with that, yeah, yeah. You know, but oh, you're just wanting him to get through every race and not had anything extra to the already, you know, torn that body and yeah. And having to look his wife in the eye when things did go wrong, you know, and being at the hospital and it's like she's just as hard. It's really yeah. Doug's story is like so heavy anyway. Yeah. Him being so close to getting paralyzed in that first crash on Honda's yeah. Yeah. and then, you know, yeah. to come back and have the success he did and then have it happen. I was like, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's I. I just I feel for guys who've been in it as long as you have, because just a little bit I experienced. I'm like, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the race weekends were great. I hated the Monday to Friday in the office. Yeah. But those moments of seeing people get hurt that I yeah. knew intimately. Yeah. 
And we added for me that, you know, it wasn't just motocross, like the road race side, you know, Aaron Gilbert was a kid that rode for us and he, he got watered up pretty big at Daytona, you know, and just getting the guys through that because that's a super life or death moments for these guys. And, and so, you know, he was tore up bad. I never thought he really would ride again. He came back and rehabilitated, won another championship, you know, and then, you know, alcohol started getting the best of him and everything. And you're like, okay, it's time for you just to back off here, you know, and be done. So, yeah, it's tough. Like, what again, a character he was. You And, and you, yeah. I keep forgetting, you got to work with all these different... Yeah, his brother, he was really a uh, unique guy. And Tosh A is a pretty special kid. You know, Cameron Bobier, Gary Gerloff, you know, Shady Beats, or the long list, Jake Gagne. They're all... Those guys were closer because those events are three- and four-day events. And so you get... You're, you're seeing them, right, for this little period of time. So you're with them, their girlfriends, their mom, and their dads, and... It's good. It's a fun time. You know? Yeah, it's great. Um, if you had to pick, and maybe, maybe this is sort of the answer you just said, but the three most impressive athletes you've worked with. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Bob, I think would be at my top because I just know what he gave, and when it came to that athletic part, that's what actually helped him win so much because he was such a determined guy, mentally, mm -hmm. physically, and all that. So he would probably be the number one guy, Doug. Just for his resilience, you know, he, um, he, you know, it comes down to like when you separate talent and to what they have, uh, you know, what, what helped them win. So there's two things. The talent could be what helps them win or the amount of effort they give. When you get a guy that does both, unstoppable. But Bob's talent probably what is, wasn't quite as, I don't want to say like a fluid, like a Kevin Windham riding style and how good he was on the bike and stuff, you know. Kevin had a lot of talent. Bob had enough talent and a lot of all the other stuff to go with it. And uh, Doug Henry was in there, the third guy. I'm trying to think of who that would be. Um, and it may not be a motocross guy. It could be yeah. one of the Cameron Bobier certainly was a, is like an unbelievable talented road race guy. Mm. But, you know, Josh Hayes, I mean, they're all, they're, you, you hate to give a name because there's guys that are equal there that have sure. that same amount of talent too. Yeah. That same mixture. Yeah, yeah, I guess I, I we always get focused on just the moto, but yeah, right. there's so many cool disciplines, yeah. the, the, uh, the car stuff, the yeah. Baja off-road stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, they're all like, and that's that helped me in a sense, like never just think this was all it is because for a long time I did. Till you get down and you realize there's some other remarkable stories and guys, you know, absolutely never ends. Absolutely. Uh, if you if you had to pick a discipline, you could only watch one for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. What would it be? Well, I mean, supercross and motocross, I'm never going to want to give up. But I, I can watch road racing too. I learned to see things that probably a lot of people don't see. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, but. Yeah, it would be motocross, supercross, and just know what goes into that and how important the, the effort from the riders, the strength and everything on the team is everything that's kind of important there, you know. Still your first love, probably. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's what I yeah. for the majority of my life, anyway. <clears throat> um, you mentioned earlier a big part of your job was was playing psychologist or psych, you know, psychiatric guy. Um, talk a little bit more about that because 
I, th I find it interesting that you say every rider is that way. Yeah. Uh, I guess every athlete is that way. I don't think you're just a rider. Every athlete that I know has some level of insecurity. And it always comes. I mean, there's a lot of things that can trigger it, you know. Just like, I mean, it could be a family thing, something's going on, or their own thing, or a relationship that's gone bad, or who knows what. And then you got to get in there and remind them. My, my, the way I would do this, and I want to clarify, this isn't just for athletes. I mean, the team guys have an equal amount of security, some of them as well. So they get them feeling good about what they're doing and what they're not doing and all those things. You kind of need to see the whole field. But on the writer's side, what I would say to them, my biggest thing is whenever there was some success, something that you never wanted them to forget is to remind them remember this day because when you're feeling like crap and you're sick and you don't know if you can get this done there'll be a bigger story here but remember this day that's why you want to come here so you can feel just like you do today so a guy like Bob who yeah he felt good winning but when he his best win was when he felt bad because he didn't think he would be able to do it mm -hmm. he didn't expect to be able to do it and he still dug in he still did it, it. Right. I, I just find that fascinating because to me, I look at a guy it, it, and actually when we had Carmichael on mm -hmm. and I said, you know, what, what, what was it, man? How, how did you, you just were, were you just so confident? You just knew you were going to win. And he goes, no, I, I was terrified to lose. Right. Every week I go home and go, he, he says, I go home and, and I just think they're going to figure it out. They're going to, they're going to come after you. They're going to get me this weekend. Right. And he goes, that was my drive because I was always terrified to lose. Never knew how vulnerable he really was. I would have never guessed that in a million right. years. I, I was an insecure basket case. You know, I had these moments of confidence where I would do well. Yeah. Like I thought a guy like him or a guy like Reed, a guy, you know, these guys who win yeah. and stay at this high, high level. Yeah. Well, they just must have this belief that. You know, and then there's no doubt, there's no hesitancy. Yeah. But you're saying, no, we I don't care. Bob, I, I remember, you know, being on the starting line, reminding him, nobody, look up and down here, look both ways. Nobody here worked as hard as you did. Nobody. Don't forget that. And you're feeling like crap out there in minute 39. These guys think what they must be feeling like. Mm. Or two laps to go or whatever it is. There's no way. Yeah. And just keep reminding them. And he, you know, that guy, that guy ran, he rode, he put up, he, he put in the effort. Didn't matter, rain or shine, hot or cold, he was on his bike. Yeah. Or bicycle or whatever was going on. And at that level, at that high, high level, the very peak pointy end, it's all confidence, all yeah. belief. Yeah. So I, I think we discount that a lot. Um, yes, you can get there, you get that confidence by testing, by training your butt off, by by practicing a lot, but that's a component that's really tough to put together, right? Yeah. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I mean the dedication because it's not just you know going to the gym. It's pretty easy, you know, getting in the track, having people cater to you at the at the test track and all that's easy. But you still got to live your life. You've got to put all your personal things on hold so you can focus on what it is you got to go do. Mm -hmm. You know, who are the guys you got to beat if you're in a two or three race championship? You know, two rider, three rider. Hey, your his pictures on your mirror so you never forget. You wake up wanting to beat that guy, like not wanting to show that mercy, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like you want them to feel bad when you beat them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's part of your reasoning for wanting to get out there. That's why he could never really be close to guys that he would have to race with. Yeah. Because you you, you wouldn't do that to somebody that you're close to. He wanted to hate him. Oh, my yeah, God. He made yeah. himself. Yeah. Still does to this day, I think, you know, for various reasons. 
for mainly because he doesn't feel like they earned their money. Like they got paid a lot of money too, and he beat their ass. You know. Hmm. So I don't know. That's, that was his. That was his little trigger. You know that, that worked. And well, he made it work. That's for work. dang sure. Um, you, you've seen, we, we talked a little bit about this, but you've seen a lot of different models for race teams. So the, the full factory effort, uh, the satellite effort, um, I mean, you guys have had Yamaha Troy, you've had Mach 1, uh, um, L&M, San Manuel. I mean, you guys yeah. now star. What's, what's the model going forward here well, for our sport? I mean, you know, I look at NASCAR or these other big, bigger sports and they don't, Chevrolet isn't out. Yeah. running their own race team you know they yeah. they provide the support sure and it's somewhat it's someone else's job yeah but in our sport you look at um gibbs and you think if jgr can't do it if they can't make it then yeah. how in the world are we gonna yeah. but then maybe they didn't make it for you know again you know every everything every team's got its moment in time you know and for sure i think that the satellite team is good I think they're the long-term future for things to grow and hopefully more of them. And the reasoning is, you know, that gives you more opportunity for other sponsors to come into the sport, which that's what's going to help it live, right? Okay. Can just survive on Monster or Red Bull or whomever, you know, the big, big uh, people you got to have the, the other groups as well. So that allows those things to happen. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that are kind of hidden, like, laws that these big companies have to worry about, you know, in terms of employees or non-employees or traveling and overtime and meals, and what goes on. And a lot of things that we did or try to do are specific in nature to some of those things that we had to abide by. Right. So it just becomes business becomes more difficult or more expensive for just the five or six factories to want to do that, you know, so I think that the inevitability is that, that everybody's going to have satellite teams that they use or multiple satellite teams. We've been very successful, you know, with them in terms of championships. And you just need to check your ego at the door and say, look, you, I'm still part of all those. Hell, I made the contract with most of them, you know? Right. So I have a certain amount of you know, gratitude to them to do, because I know the work they had to do and the guys doing it. So, but there's not everybody feels that same way, you know. And there was so. a, there was a time I, I'm gonna probably fudge up the years. I think it was right after Langston was there, where you guys did away with the factory yeah. team. Uh, and then I don't know, maybe it was several years later. You had Cooper Webb move it up, and you guys brought the factory right. effort back. Yeah. Talk about that. What what was the yeah. motivation well, behind that? I mean, we always, you know, so when the team goes out of your house, you lose a little bit of control, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's a difference of opinion about the way things can or should be getting done, you know, and you, you never really know who's right. But so, you know, having an internal, you have a lot more control. And I don't mean like I'm saying you're wrong and I'm right. It's just things that you want to do when it's out, you, you lose that control. Sure. So if you want to give somebody what you feel is the best, um, sometimes it's got to be in house for you to make that kind of investment. To, to get those things, whether it's suspension or maybe their suspension company doesn't want to give you the best if it's not under your control. You know, mm-hmm. it could be a lot of things, um, variable things, or the factory doesn't want certain things out of your control, you know? Yeah. And so it, you just, you just don't know what, what, what's coming your way, but for sure it's all done. Whatever is being done is done 
to give the rider the best that you could give them. Otherwise, you shouldn't really be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, and I feel like you guys, if whatever the formula is with Star, yeah, holy cow. Yeah. I mean, this is a team that a decade ago was definitely a subpar team. Yeah. I mean, it was like, if you were going there, it's like, yeah. Eh. And they, you know, number one, Bobby and Loretta Reagan love what they do in this sport. Bobby Reagan can tell you things that he did when he was first traveling, both of them sleeping in their car, investing their money, Loretta winning at the, she likes to gamble and, Believe me, her wings have supported that oh, team. Oh, is that right? Oh, yes. A number of times outside of their Chevrolet dealership and all that. So they've invested personally, you know, uh, I mean, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'm sure. So the fact that they would listen, you know, to, and I don't, I don't want to sit here and say we taught them everything, but for me personally, I've always been very open and very direct with things that I thought they needed to do as a team, whether it was Brad Lockman talking about motor match and how they helped to frame flex or Bobby Reagan about personnel and having the right team manager to do the job or, you know, I've always been open in giving them what I would consider part of the formula for success. Mm. And then they throw their own spin on it. Bobby's a great motivator with these guys. If you're fortunate enough to be in the truck when he has a little powwow, or a kid like Aaron Plessinger, when Aaron needs to be relaxed, Bobby might look at him and say, Aaron, let's sing a song. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it's just that charismatic and that easy going and knowing he wants the best for you too. He wants to be that guy to give you the opportunity to make hundreds of thousands of dollars if you just work hard and he's willing to do his side to help you get there. So regardless if it was them or the Gibbs team, you know, Gibbs had their way, certain things they wanted it done this way. You, you you can't, you know, they're putting out the money. You can't say no. And whether it worked or not, maybe, maybe it did or maybe it not, didn't, you know. Right. But, but we didn't do any less for them in terms of, let me give you this advice. If you want to win at Supercross in January and February, you probably need to be doing it out here. Mm-hmm. Or the ground is unlike nowhere else you're going to go. Right. And they never wanted to do that, you know, when we did to it when we we're able to get them here they had some margin some level of success you know yeah. but they were kind of dug in about the irish stuff they did what they felt they needed to do and they were i hope they didn't do it to want to prove me wrong because that doesn't mean anything you know at the end of the day it's about winning for all of us sure so you know again so you for me i never try to take it personal either way what i'm giving or what i'm getting i don't you know understand there's tense moments for people and I don't want to make it personal like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah business is business. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of hair on those issues. Right? Trying to it's rebound not... from that personal stuff. Yeah. But is, is there, can race teams turn a profit in our sport? Yes. Yeah, they could. Yes. I'm sure that, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody's doing it for that reason. I think they just want to make sure they pay their bills. Yeah. Because they always want to keep reinvesting, getting better. And, you know, you got to pay the people that are helping you. But they, they can. I, I just look at um, I look at all the teams that have come and gone. Yeah. FMF, Honda. I mean, like L&M, Gibbs now, uh, Mach 1. What was the team? Wardy managed there for a minute. You know, and it, there's been there's yeah. been dozens of them, yeah. right? Uh, Mitch has stuck around. You know, there's a handful that are have been there a long time. Yeah. But I just think it's got to be difficult. I, I don't get I'm not privy to those books. Well, number one, the companies part of the reason they want to have an aftermarket or satellite team is 
AON have to pay for everything, right? And if they were going to do that, they might as well have it themselves. So in that pretense, then they're, these teams are dependent on sponsorship too to help offset whatever these big companies aren't paying for. So, you know, again, it's cyclic. If the, the money comes from sponsors, sponsors have budgets and their budgets are dependent on their sales and COVID-19 didn't do anybody any favors, mm -hmm. you know, further away you get from the team thing. So, you know, I think that probably leading up to it, people were doing okay. They're probably getting all their bills paid. I don't recall any big problems where guys were calling me saying, hey, I didn't get my money, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it was going okay, and I think it will rebound uh, once we get back. You know, I see drive around here. I see people in restaurants, and things are going, and no masks, and everybody's happy. So I'm I'm pretty sure they'll get back to what was a normal and hopefully better than that. Yeah. Because companies are going to, you know, shows like this are going to promote all of these things and help companies realize, hey, I can do better than what I was doing. There's more out there, you know, mm -hmm. for me to promote my product. I've always thought that a, a key component to a team sticking around long term is that they've got to have a product in in this industry they can sell. Mm -hmm. Mitch Payton obviously sells pro circuit products. Yeah. Troy Design selling gear. Yeah. Um, but I look at Star and I'm thinking outside of cars in Texas, He's not really selling any products, but he's thriving. So he well, kind of that's, that's where the that's where their personal passion comes in. Like I said, whether they're getting all their bills paid, they're willing to put their own money in. I call it their own skin in the game. Yeah, because they want to win. That's the ultimate gift for Bobby and Loretta is to win. And then they look at the kids that they've pushed on. You know, yeah. they don't have kids of their own. These are their kids. Yeah. These are their families. Whether that kid rides for them today or goes to somewhere else, I guarantee you all of those people are still great friends with the Reagans. Yeah. Because they gave them opportunity beyond what Yamaha or anybody else gave them at that time. They they made it happen. Yeah. With not just their money, but their dynamic teams, their personalities, their their the, the quality of guys that they're putting out there, you know. And that goes for mechanics and drivers, truck drivers. Everybody in the industry owes them some daily gratitude along the way. Absolutely. Because they made it happen. Yeah, I, I never really looked at it that way, but you look yeah. at all the kids who've come out of there and made yeah. a lot of money, gone on to achieve a lot of their goals yeah. because of them. That's yeah. got to feel good for them. You're right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, You were at Yamaha for, geez. 44 years. <laughs> okay, four and a half decades. Something like that, yeah. Four and a half decades of racing. What was your favorite? What was your favorite era? My favorite era of motor, motocross. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's good. It's been good now. It was back then. I mean, again, there was a lot of, in the early days, it was fun. After, you know, the racing after the camaraderie and everybody goes, oh, that's so cool. But it was very cool. And I'm glad I was able to take part of it, but it never was really achieving the level that I knew this sport could get to. So seeing the amount of people and, 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 you know what they'll go through to come to the races and everything it's kind of awesome to be a part of that you know yeah and to help have built it i feel like i have because i've been on these rules committees and talking to promoters and people that would listen and i remember talking to the national promoters giving them a list of things that they want these things to be successful they got to make them more common you know things and carry and the kumis family grab the bull by the horns and and put the series together where one race feels like the other to all the competitors and, and I'm sure to all the spectators and how you get your 
passes and the tickets and how the show goes. I mean, that stuff just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That came with guys like me or Dave Arnold or, you know, Bruce Sternstrom or pick your guy. I don't want to leave anybody out, but pick somebody that put their input, you know, their, their, their feelings to these promoters and to our companies and to try to show them this is the way to make you stronger and better and everlasting, you know? And so I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I feel that 20 years ago was better than it is today. It's got to be the best it's ever been right now. Mm-hmm. So like I told you before, I don't want to look back. I want to be thankful that I was part of it. I survived it. I helped people in my time, did the best I could do, but I'm quite happy now that I'm upright and enjoying yeah. getting to go to that race at Paula because of Bobby and Loretta invited me and my wife and had a great time with them, watching their team thrive, watching the racing be good. The track was awesome, you know, everything, everything was perfect. Was it, what was the feeling different? But just being there as a, a spectator bit. instead a of bit. having a little bit. You know, yeah. I mean, and it is because you don't, you know, when you're the guy in the, in the team mm-hmm. and somebody that's not part of it on a daily basis walks in, you're kind of feeling like, what are you doing in my house? So I don't want to be that guy to those guys, you know? Yeah. It's funny, I my boss, Kenny Clark, used to always show up at the races and he have all these pictures. He carried around pictures, right? With sailboat and all the stuff that he was doing. For me, it was a distraction. I, I like Kenny, I got a lot to do with him, but my mind was focused on somewhere else. I said, I'm never going to be that guy. Well, guess what? Now I'm going to the races. I pulled my phone out. I got pictures of him. I got pictures of my son's dogs and them swimming and all the grand, you know, whatever. I've got my own set of pictures. So I'm kind of like him too. So I really don't want to be distracting in a time when I know they need to focus. I don't want their seat falling off because of me or any of those other things. So it's different, but in, in a positive way. I can stand back. And when I go to these races, I know what I'm looking for to help somebody not make that mistake or double check something that I saw they got distracted. You know, I want to be that guy for them. Yeah. You know? so yeah. I'm okay with it. I, I, I experienced that on a much smaller level. After managing Troy's team, the next couple of years, I've come into the pits and I'm acting like I'm still part of the team. Right. There you go. Right. You know, and I'm walking through the semi. And then you, again, you start to go, oh, I'm not. I'm not a part of this team anymore. You know, like I need to stay over here in the hospitality side and, you just know, enjoy it. And that's enjoy. I never, I never went to the races to be able to enjoy it. It's always been work and I enjoyed that work, but not to the level where I don't worry about the responsibility. Right. So now when I go and I can be that guy, kind of, I think it's good. As long as you got a place to put your bag, that's the one annoying <laughs> thing. Like having a backpack and not having somewhere where Brett and Christy would come and they want I understand what they're thinking because when I don't have that, I don't like it either. Yeah. 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 So I mean, but Bobby, I'm sure if Bobby and Loretta's doing it, I'll have a place or Jim or whoever, you know, Roach. Tell me if this drove you crazy. This is a little bit of a rabbit hole. My biggest pet peeve mm-hmm. when I was managing the team is people would take a bottle of water out of the cooler. Yeah take about two sips of it, set yeah. it down. And by the end of the day, there's 45 bottles of water, half drank, sat in all, sit all right. Over yeah. Used to drive me bananas. Yeah. It's a big one of mine too. <laughs> a big enough to where I wanted to get dots or I asked people to put their initials on it. So at least we know who it is. Cause I don't want to drink after people and I know they don't. Yeah. And, and the bad part was sometimes I was guilty of that too. I tried to just stick it in my pocket, you know, especially at a road race, you know, we used to do this big hospitality thing. We go through 
pallets of water, you know. And so I put the little recycling things thinking, okay, I'm just going to dump the water in these coolers that we have. They're the, you know, the, the swamp cooler. Yeah, the swamp cooler thing. And so at least I save your water, recycle the bottom and everything, and I'd be okay. But I couldn't do it with a Coke or whatever. I used to pour it in the coffee maker. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That probably pissed people off if they yeah. knew that. But anyway. Um, I sure that. <laughs> I'm sure all team managers, it, it's got to drive them nuts. Um, Yamaha was at the, obviously at the tip of the spear moving into that four stroke revolution. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if now seeing where we're at, is there, do you have any reservations about like, was that maybe a mistake for us? I mean, it's bikes are easier to ride than they've ever been, but they're more expensive than they've ever been. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I, I think that you can't stop technology. I think mean, if you try to, put this label on it or whatever. I mean, think about all the things, you know, our cell phones, okay, I mean, we didn't have them. Certainly they make your life more complicated, but they also make it more productive too. Right. And so when I think of that for a show, you know, my personal experience was, you know, one of the companies tried to do it way back in my early days and they kind of failed miserably at it with, um, reliability and function and all those things. And the fact that, you know, me personally was able to be part of something and the way it went on was pretty stinking awesome. And it's funny how these two lines are four stroke and cell phones intersect for me. But when I was asked to go to Japan to test these very, to be part of this group that did all this, cell phones were just coming out. Yeah. And I was standing there on a mountain in the middle of nowhere with a flip cell phone from somebody says, here, call your, call your wife. You are not going to believe where I'm at and what I'm talking to you on, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, it's, it was a moment for me that I'll never forget standing, like standing in that umbrella corner at Sepang, you know, that they're asked to go there for a road race test. And I'm like, I watched it on Formula One. I was a Formula One guy. That's an unmistakable corner. And I'm standing on it, looking around, you know, calling home, going, you're not going to believe this, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but as far as the four stroke itself, I don't think it was a mistake. I think it made it uh, good for many more riders to be better riders. And when you stop and look about in the days of the two stroke thing, there was always one, two, or maybe three guys that could get the job done. Now we've got 10 or 12. That wasn't going to happen with two strokes. Just, just wasn't. So, well, they not, were, yeah, they're, not, they were more difficult to ride. Yeah. So, and that's the whole point is that people couldn't master, you know, traction and throttle control and where the four shows have traction with no throttle control, you know? So, I mean, I just think that we wouldn't be looking at the type of racing we're looking at if we were back on two shops and you know, I just don't, I don't think that would be true, hmm. but maybe I'm wrong. And I think that from a company standpoint, I don't want to speak for them, but I'll say this. If people still wanted to buy two strokes and the numbers that they're buying four strokes, they'd be happy to sell them. Right. It's one of the reasons Yamaha doesn't stop making people are still buying them some number to make it reasonable. Mm -hmm. But you know, the development of them stop and all the regulations that get put on them, it all it's all kind of relevant, you know. Yeah. So, but I don't think it was a mistake. I think it what? enhanced it. And don't take me wrong. I know Yamaha. Did, I'm not putting blame on them yeah. for the people that don't like the four stroke movement. Yeah. This was this was pushed 
a decade earlier yeah. by the EPA and, yeah. and other agencies here yeah. in California, CARB and all that, right? It was going to happen whether Yamaha did it or someone else jumped on it. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not a hater. I just am curious about it because there yeah. are people that, you know, are of right. that opinion. Or they're probably older, number one, and they're not very mechanically inclined, number two. Yeah. So everything that, that this adds to their, you know, challenge of working on your own bikes, it, it makes it tough. I get yeah. that, you know. Well, I'm that guy. I can't pull a four. You know, I could build a two-stroke engine all day long. Yeah. I will. I think you could. If somebody, I could. If yeah. somebody just watch you through it, then the other thing to think about is the four short doesn't need the maintenance mm -hmm. as often as the two short did. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, you know, even though the parts might be a little more expensive, you're doing it one third the time. So, in the end, it all kind of comes back yeah. to the center. Well, and especially now, I think in the first few years, yeah. they were blowing up a lot more and it was a, Buying a used 250F well, was like a risky proposition. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, unless the thing was really hammered. As soon as you heard the word, it's been hopped up, that should make you run. Because <laughs> yeah. they don't understand this in the valve clearance or yeah. any of the other things that are critical for a force. Yeah. But, but it's, I think it's good. All right. So let me ask you the next question that comes after this. When is electric going to happen? You know, I don't know. I'm sure it's going to happen. I just don't know. It'll be in my lifetime where, you know, the other stuff's all outlawed. But I was just, it was funny. I was watching an E-Formula race the other day. And first time I'm I'm like, I'm going to see how this is going to be. What's it? What's the sound I'm going to hear that's going to draw me into it, you know? And, and uh, you know, I just know how gnarly electric can accelerate. You know, I grew up on slot cars and, electric braking and acceleration. So kind of have a little bit of that. And I'm trying to understand like the push on your seat when you mash on something that, yeah. you know. Uh, have you ever ridden in a Tesla? Yes, I have. I have, but I mean, not, you know, I'm not ridden in one to the point where my son was going to buy one and we took a couple of test drives, but I don't think he had the ludicrous mode. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, the plaid and the ludicrous yeah, yeah. Just like goes from zero to 60 in three seconds or something now. It's incredible. Yeah, you spend a little more money and have a better battery or something. But yeah, so I think it's, I think it can be just as exhilarating to drive it. And, but without the noise and all the other things. So I, I gotta believe there's going to be a time when we, when we're, when we're going to watch. What was your take on the Formula One, the E, E, Water, I mean, um, well, I didn't watch it long enough because there was a big crash and it went on, you know, just they were just going around and I'm just hearing this, you know, kind of thing. And I didn't want to stick it out, but I think it probably, you know, probably could have been okay. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, uh, I, I rode the Alta a little bit when it was uh, right before it went under. Mm -hmm. Um, what's the other one? Uh, Zero. Yeah. yeah. I've ridden some of their street right bikes. The street, yeah. And it's, I mean, the performance is impressive. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. think that's going to be the issue. Yeah. I think the issue or the concern that I have is I cannot, I cannot imagine sitting in Angel Stadium and, yeah. you know, you hear all the people talking and chatter and the announcer and then the gate drops and like, yeah. it's like, you, said, you hear, it sounds like RC cars yeah. because the smell of the exhaust, the, the yeah. vibration when they're all revved up on the line, I mean, man, I don't know. I got to believe every fan. Yeah. You get those butterflies and that feeling in your your chest. What's funny is just think about society and where we're at, and whether the things that are society is squashing into noise, air pollution, you know, yeah, uh, just all those things, all of which the sport that we love 
contributes to that. Yeah. So, you know, whether we like it or not, somebody's going to be telling us these are no good for you, you know. Yeah. The hearing can damage your hearing and the smell can give you a COPD or whatever. So if you want to have it, you, you, you're probably going to be funneled into this thing somewhere along the line. Mm. So again, I don't think it has to be a bad thing. There's lots of kids on Stasics or whatever electric things are having the time of their life. Yeah. And for the parent that doesn't know how to put a spark plug in, he just got to plug in yep. a charger, which his cell phone taught him how to do that. You know, when to do that, right? Yes. I mean, I see the inevitability of all these things. And so you can either embrace it and try to understand it and do, be good with it and use it to your benefit or just, you know, find something else, you know, for me. We can go on. I like guns. I'm always going to shoot guns. I don't know that I'm going to have a magnetic gun to shoot that doesn't need power or anything. But so, you know, I'll still be wearing earmuffs unless they be like silencers, which will protect my hearing. Sure. But uh, I just, I just think that technology is just coming our way. And, you know, I I think you're right when you said you can't stop progress. Yeah. And to to try to fight it or, or, or stave it off, it's, it's kind of futile, yeah. right? But I, I, and I think that there's things with electric, uh, you could open riding areas where you would never have been sure. able to ride with noise sure. and, and all that sure. stuff. So that there are some good things. Um, I just, man, I, I just can't picture it in a. They call us old school. So I do I suppose, man. We gotta, be, we gotta be new school. We gotta be progressive school. And I think when it'll happen, this is just my, I'm, I, I'm you know, I'm sure you know more. Maybe you can't say anything. I know Yamaha's, they already make, Mountain bikes, e-bike, yeah. you know, you guys have electric motors. Yeah. Uh, Honda, they've, they've debuted that electric 250 or I don't know what they're calling yeah. it, a 250, 250 equivalent. That thing's been around for a little bit. Yeah. I, I know all the manufacturers have yeah. their fingers on that pulse, but like you said, now we got kids on Stasix. KTM's making the 50 as an electric bike. I don't think they're even making a, a gas 50 anymore. Yeah. I think when that generation yeah. grows up, they're going to be comfortable with electric yeah. and, and though that will be the progression. Yeah. So count that out 10 years, eight years. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just know, I don't know when I'm, I would be surprised if it didn't happen, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm okay with that. I like, it's funny, you know, I, I, I like riding bicycles, but I know there's a big hill between my house and Irvine park. I can't get without the E, e components. Yeah. So it made it awesome. Made me, made me enjoy the ride, yeah. you know? So, well, I have a specialized e-bike and I don't yeah. ride anything else anymore. Yeah. It does everything but better and more right. fun. You right. know, I don't, I don't know what else to tell people. Yeah. Um, uh, My oh. sense back to that though, is I think the companies for sure they're looking at it, but I think much like Yamaha and the two stroke or the four stroke thing, as long as people want to buy them and want to hang on to that, I think they would be willing to sell them and bless you know, uh, some other political thing forces them to change course, you know? Mm. So, well, shoot, you look at, uh, California, the law passed the law 20, is it 2035? No more, uh, internal combustion engines. Is that right? So I don't think they can sell a a combustion, internal combustion pressure washer right now in California. That's crazy. It's crazy. Companies can't, the real ones. They still get away with things. But. Meanwhile, when it gets hot here, the governor yeah. issues a statement saying, no one plug in your electric cars. We, we can't yeah. run enough air conditioning yeah. units. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> tell me about this. This is a question I've had. I, I've always wanted to pick your brain on. Yeah. The current generation of YZFs, 
are, uh, it's an interesting thing to me because the 250 is like class leading, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's won every shootout. <laughs> they seem like they win championships every year. Wow. That bike is a weapon. Yeah. The 450 has just not had the success at the pro level. Yeah. Um, it, it's won some shootouts. It's a good bike in stock trim, but when you, at the, at the highest level, for whatever reason, and I'm curious to get your take, it's just been, it's yeah. been a tough go for them. And I think Star's done a good job this year. Those yeah. guys look like maybe they figured some things out, but what's your yeah, take on that? They're having more success with it too. You know, um, I think there's there's probably some reasons behind I don't want to get into too deep of it, but, you know, again, you know, big company, small company, and small companies much more uh, nimble. nimble to be able to get to where they need to go and not looking at the numbers that say Yamaha is or the, you know, it's funny, the production and things, like what it takes to do productions in Japan, a country with not a lot of resources of its own, right? Mm-hmm. So their vendors are quite important where they get pieces, you know, the strategic long-term play to build any of these things, it's got a big deal. So I think the way that they go about that limits some of the things that they really want to do, that the designer might want to do. They just can't figure out a way to do some things. So, you know, they just keep chipping away at design. You know, when I was there, I saw some designs that were quite a few years out that would would benefit the things that they probably need to improve to make that 450 the best bike. And I think they'll get there. I think, you know, maybe in the next few years, they'll be coming out with that unless something changed for even a better direction, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the way that Yamaha does production where they're using common parts for different things, one, it's always going to be better on one than the other, right? Right. If the 450 is going to be good for that because they need it or the 250, but it's not probably not going to be both. And so, um, uh, like the, they share a frame and yeah, and, all right. So right? just looking at, I'm no physicist or engineer, but I, I think based on weight and torque numbers and horsepower, I, I don't see how the same exact frame can right. work. Yeah. Great in both. Right? I mean, I think that they're, you know, certainly the engine plates and the design of the engine itself that, you know, it's, it helps with the twist and rotational numbers of uh, the frame rigidity. I think they, they're good at it. They're getting better at it all the time. Just mm-hmm. aluminum frames in general, you know, yeah. how we can we make it to make it strong enough over here, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and to, to kind of highlight the point you're talking about and make sure I'm understanding it right, mm-hmm. um, I've always, and I've asked this question and the answer I got, like, why does a 250 come with KYB and a 450 comes with Showa? This one comes with Dunlop, this one comes right. with Bridgestone. Yeah. It's because they want to, those Japanese companies want to kind of sure. share all of that, right? right? Exactly. But, you know, I don't know, the fact that it uses somebody's component different, you know, it's kind of, I would use the analogy when we had a 450 team factory team or the 250 satellite team it, it was impossible for us to do it all so we had to make a decision where do you go by putting the 250 team over there allowed us to do our 450 team different so when it comes to those components just because it worked on the 250 doesn't mean it's right for the 450 but it allows those separate companies to be specialists for each of those groups right so it's not a bad thing i don't think it's just a different thing yeah so Again, what you know, few vendors, you know, only several to choose from on what they're going to do, and and the guy, the project leader for that bike, wants it to be the very best it can be. But somebody above him is going, "Hey, man, we can 
I mean, we got to use this venue because these guys are overloaded. So yeah. let's do the best we can do, you know? Mm. So I think it's more of something like that. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but I, I given your position, yeah. I, I'm curious on your take on it. What the hell is going on with Suzuki? Uh, I, I, I just, I feel like uh, at, at a time they had the best 125, the best 80. They won 125 championships all the time. Uh, they, they, at times they put a lot of effort into racing and man, it's just, yeah. you're looking at a bike that hasn't changed in a decade. And I, I worry that they pull out altogether. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. They're, well, I mean, they went through a very low period there where they, the production just, you know, I mean, they, they used to sell a boatload of street bikes and that dropped off, you know, just when the street bike trend changed. Right. So that, again, when I talked earlier about certain areas that come in that were strongly helping the weaker areas mm -hmm. but when your strong area now becomes a weak area and your weak area gets weaker now you've really got trouble mm -hmm. so they don't really have any of the home runs to 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 give some extra bazooka gel over here you know right so, when i read that at a time they dominated like the the mini suv market the, the suzuki yeah. samurai if you remember yeah. that they had these small little vehicles that they sold a ton of right. globally right and then Honda and uh, Toyota, all these others came in with com competing vehicles. Not in the compliance and the political thing, you know, how it tips over, you got to do this. I mean, all these safety regulations kill these companies, you know, when even though it's a big company doing a small run, that's a huge expense to putting something on the market, you know. So U.S. being a pretty big chunk of that goes away. Now you really got problems where you got no source of revenue to draw from. Right. So I think that's just the catch swing too. KCM comes in, Husky comes in, more pressure on the motocross stuff, bad for Suzuki. Mm. You know. So it's just again, I don't know the details. I mean, again, you can look at some of the data and see they're less not selling stuff and dropping fairly rapid. So it doesn't look good, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh um well, you, you got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, how, how, what does that mean to you? How, how important is that to you? It was pretty special. I mean, I probably, you know, I think I wouldn't be lying if I said it wasn't special to me too, but maybe it was more to my family than me because it validated me being gone all that time, mm -hmm. you know, going somewhere, doing something for somebody else, you yeah. know, to be recognized for it. Yeah. You give up a lot of your time. People don't realize. Yeah. Right. Racing is consuming. All family life. All consuming. Yeah. And there was other things like I regret some of that as much as I regretted not tightening those bolts or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it all weighs on me. But yeah, it was really, it was, it was, I think about it all the time that it's something that there's a lot of people that deserve it too that may never get in there. You know? Well, thanks. I know. I mean, they haven't reached him. Yeah, exactly. But... <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, uh, you know, when you talk about, hey, I I don't see myself as being in the company of those same guys too, but they see me, you know, like John Krasinski, the road race guy, you know, I mean, I've known John since he grew up, know his dad really well, world champion guy, got him, you know, into our teams and stuff, and hey, I'm on the stage with him or Wayne Rainey or whatever, you know, Kenny Roberts, my heroes too, right? Yeah. So it's not I'm in that, that group, so yeah, it's, it's, um, no, it's it's, inc it's incredibly cool. I, I hear a lot of compliments on my speech because I tied in a few things, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm also it's on YouTube. 
Yeah. Oh, I watched it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Uh, the uh, what was it Yamaha University? Yeah, Yamaha. Yeah, yeah. Um, Certificate. Well, yeah. Again, that man. There's a lot of incredible writers, incredible industry people who've done a lot who are not in there. Yeah. So it's a it's a big it's honor. Sad, but it's good. Yeah. Uh, if you look back on your your whole career, your whole life at this point, mm-hmm. what are you most proud of? What are the things you're most proud of? Personally and professionally. Yeah, personally, you're sitting right here. Yeah, your grandson over here. My son, my daughter, you know, my wife, you know, we've uh, done a lot of stuff, just my family in general, you know. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like every man has a great wife behind them, and, you know, you got that thing can just go down, your family, and that's where you get your, you know, your, your, your direction, your north on your compass, you know, comes from your family and stuff, so... Yeah, I'm really proud of that. And uh, you know, work wise, yeah, I'm I'm proud of that. I I think that um I was lucky to be in the positions working with the people that I have been able to work with, you know, the some of some of the bosses that I've had and they they're um you know the way that they allowed me to do the job and had belief in you belief in me and that things were okay. I had both people that wanted to restrict you and control everything, and the other ones where they just let you go and let you show them that you can do it, knowing that you have their best interests at heart too. You know, so that's that's been a moment in my life. But right now, I feel like I'm just. I feel like you know, I used to run a lot, and the first mile I went out, you get that pain in your spleen where it's really trying to put blood in your body, and you just kind of have to take. Like you saw in your breathing at that point, right? And I feel that's where I'm at right now is I'm just trying to let that cramp get away and breathe properly so I can see what's coming next and how far I can go. And I don't know what that's going to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I know I enjoy watching him do stuff and so I was helping my son out with some of his stuff and my daughter's back on her feet, you know, getting going good. And so I really want to do something for ourselves or myself, my wife and I, we both enjoy shooting, you know, we do a little bit of that, but we haven't done much of it for various reasons. And so again, we do some of that dogs. We found the breed of our life. We love our little pities. You know, my son's dogs are just pit bulls. Yeah. Pits. yeah. I was going to bring one today. Ashbury, he's super compatible everywhere you go. And but like that, man, you know, I didn't want to leave the other one at home alone. Yeah. So that's been, that's really good. But you know, just, Getting back, doing stuff with family again that, uh, you know, whatever, like I said, I don't know what's next. But whatever you want. Whatever. You know, I enjoy yeah. getting a call from Bobby Reagan, just throwing something at me and I'll tell him what I can tell him and what I think can, okay, you know, so I'm just. Well, that's got to feel nice too, that whether it's Bobby Reagan or it's it's uh, old racers or Bob, unless you change your phone number, they're going to continue to call yeah. you and, and bounce ideas off you and. Check in. I mean, that's got to feel good yeah. too, you know. That was a big deal getting to keep my number because it's like I've had it forever. You know? Yeah. So it's a drama, but I got it. So good. what was it that? What was the? Was there a catalyst that made you decide to retire? Did you hit a? Well, truth be told, you know, we were going through some restructuring, and um, you know, I was forced with having to, you know, when you're a manager, you know, you've got 25 people working for you every day, every week, every month. You're looking at that list going, 
if they tell me that I got to let five guys go, you got to figure out who those five are going to be. Mm. Not a fun place to be, not uh, from a personal standpoint or professional, but it's part of the job. It's part of what I was taught to be the job. And I got that call telling me that I needed to do something. And so this happened to me probably three times at Yamaha over three periods. And part of it is to make sure that who's ever left can do the job at hand. That's one of my requirements, um, or was one of my requirements. And the other one is, if, you know, who can be impacted in a personal way. You know, the younger guys, they have a chance to rebound and to figure things out and get by in their life. Sometimes the older guys don't necessarily get that. So I really looked at, you know, what was going on and um, made decisions that were, that impacted me too by me giving up my job, left somebody else with the job. So, you know, I it worked out to where Yamaha stepped up and really treated me and a couple other guys who were in that older category that were on the cusp of, do you want to retire or not? And we made it work. And so it saved three other jobs mm. or whatever down there. So for me, that was, it's not like I was, I don't know when ready was. It's like having kids, you're never ready, but when right. you have them, you get ready. You, you are ready, yeah. right? So retiring wasn't something on my. So this wasn't a plan. Wasn't agenda, yeah. not not specifically, but it worked out to be both acceptable and okay. And the people in Yamaha made it uh, comfortable. Hmm. You know. So, well, that's a classy. That's a classy thing to do. I think there's people that probably wouldn't. Some that wouldn't have done that. Yeah, maybe. I know. Yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, again, it, um, um, I don't regret the decision and. Uh, you know, again, sometimes you don't talk about all that because it's not that important to everybody. But, you know, that was, I feel really good how I left the group, you know. Yeah. So. And who did, who did take the spot over there? Who's kind of leading? Um, well, they didn't necessarily fulfill what I was doing 100%. So, but, but the guy named Jim Roach is the guy, he's a department manager now. Okay. And Tom Halverson, who has been there for a long time, is his, uh, uh, assistant manager much like mike garrow was my guy you know did mike, mike retire as well retired as well oh i didn't know that yep so we both were on the same schedule so january december 31st with both of our last days he did a couple of months for the work in the beginning of the year for them too but so we were both out at the same time and for the in the same way same time and bob oliver left you know um i think a year before half six months or somewhere before us mm-hmm so, it's been a real, it's a real changing of the guard over there. I mean, you know, she just said 44 years. Yeah. And I don't know if Mike was there quite as long, but a long time. He was there a long time. Too. And Bob Oliver, same thing. Yeah. Uh, very influential yeah. people at Yamaha Racing. Yeah. So crazy. But, you know, but they're still, they're still kicking butt and taking names, you know? So, yeah. That's where you got to not let your ego get in it, you know? Yeah. Just, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Kind of our final question we always ask our guests is, what do you want your legacy to be in this sport? How do you want people to remember you? Hmm. I don't know. You know, when I, I told you in the beginning when I was working with Bob, especially that I probably wasn't the nicest guy. I rode that same wave of insecurity and, you know, 
just you know focusing or is what I called it at the time. And so you weren't the nicest guy to people, but I would like it I would like people to think or think of me as somebody that they could always talk to with whatever the problems were, whether they're personal in nature or professional in nature or just life in general, and that I would give them some nugget that they could take to help them through that moment. That's how I would like it to be. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the first 10 years of my, you know, mechanic career or whatever, because I just didn't have that time. Honestly, I didn't really care enough about other people to to want to be that guy. It wasn't until later that I was responsible for them that I suddenly had to change my dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're a mechanic, it's a singular focus, right? I'm I'm responsible for me and that guy. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't want to wear shoes and that's up to you. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah. So I guess that's really what it would be. It's not about how many races or how many things is it? I was a good person that they could talk to and, you know, didn't have to even be from the same team. They could just be people that I knew or they knew me and they wanted to ask a question and hey, give me a shout. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I just going through your career here, man, it, it, what an impressive 44 years. Yeah. Um, the things that you have done and accomplished there, mm-hmm. Yamaha, the people you work with, it's staggering. I used to ask this question whenever I hired somebody. And I don't remember why I started asking it, but I decided to do it because I wanted them to think that there was more, I guess I wanted them to think there was more to this job. And I said, we know how this job is going to start, but how's it going to end? And what I really- That's a tough question. It's a tough one. And I wanted it to be like, it, it doesn't need to be hostile. Business is business and things change life for you evolve and so it could be something out of your control that changes a direction that you have to go but think about that you know today if i had to give you an answer today how's it going to end you know mine ended on at least my relation my my yamaha life and i don't know that it's over it's just i don't, don't get you know not on the, the normal thing but um you know it's still very amicable and that's good yeah you know and I think you gain that perspective over time, right? Yeah. When you were younger, like you said, your first 10 years, you were very just focused and driven. Mm-hmm. But as you as you get older, you start to, you, your your vision expands, yeah. right? And you get that 30,000 foot. Yeah. 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 All, the, all your experiences, you start to realize this guy had them for the last yeah. 15 years, you know? Yeah, I remember I had a conversation with, uh, this was tough. So your motocross, now not to delay this, but it's yeah. a story I want you to hear. You know, motocross, there's a lot of seats available usually, right? We have a 250 team that has east-west program. So at any given time, there's eight to 10 places that you can put people as they progress through their career. In road racing, it's much different because the expense to do the job is much higher than the number of people you need, the cost of the equipment. The only thing that offsets that is the number of races is lower. So it almost comes out to be the same. So, but I was asked by all these writers sometimes, or actually Josh, Josh Hayes, wife asked me this question about my job and how I, how I looked at the writers and everything. And I told her, you know, like all of these guys, when we won all of these classes in, I think it was 2015, it's Middle America's first year and Yamaha won every class and won every race, right? Think about that for a minute contingency was through the roof. I mean, we had to pay every, 
every wooden nickel that we put out there for it, you know, but more than that, the rider development suddenly became a monster. You've got Jake Gagne and J.D. Beach and Cameron Bobier and uh, Garrett Gerloff and Josh Hayes and everybody wanting to ride the Yamaha, you know, and there's a few I'm probably forgetting, but it's like, how do you do with it? Joe Roberts was in there at the time. Josh Heron was in there at the time. How do you take care of all of them? I said, we got AI worry about all of them. I want them all to flourish. Man, it becomes this nightmare that you just got to give it a little bit of time, really ask yourself the tough questions. Who's in it for the right reasons? Who's willing to put in the effort and to maximize everybody's investment, you know? And uh, I think I think it worked out really well. I think everybody, I don't think anybody was extremely pissed off at me. They all ended up in some good spot to give them more opportunity. Hmm. So, I mean, that's at the end of the day, that was my job, you know? Yeah. That's a tough position. Yeah. You got to make tough decisions. Yeah. That's why I said when I didn't have to think about it anymore, I don't wake up at two in the morning for things like that anymore. A little bit of weight off the shoulders. Uh, well, we sure appreciate you taking the time today. I, I know folks are going to love hearing your story. Thanks. If they're a fan of this sport and they know what you've done, yeah, it's impressive. Cool. So I, I want to shake your hand. And yeah, just, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you giving the call and uh, having the opportunity to talk. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Keith McCarty, stay tuned. We're going to be right back to wrap up the show. Thanks, David. I want to be back. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, I want to again thank Keith McCarty. For those of you who weren't really familiar with all of the things that he's done, uh, just incredible the number of athletes he's dealt with over the years, and not just motocross and supercross, but road racing, off-road, supermoto. Uh, it, it's really incredible. Uh, the fact that he was inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame should tell you everything you need to know about him and how influential he's been in, uh, in motorcycling and motorsports in general. So just really appreciate his time and uh, thankful that he came in. Uh, I want to just also thank uh, one of our sponsors here. Support for the Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Manscaped. They are uh, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. They're offering precision engineering tools for your family jewels. And uh, they just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the 4.0, the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. And uh, you can join the over 2 million men uh, who've already trusted Manscaped with this exclusive offer, 20% off using the code Whiskey Throttle. And uh, that's free shipping worldwide and uh, on anything that you, anything you want over there using the code Whiskey Throttle. Uh, and they also have a nose hair trimmer, the Weed Whacker, amazing product. Uh, quit plucking those things. This thing is simple, easy. Uh, you don't want to have a big old bush hanging out of your nose. It's no good. Uh, so handle that. They've also got mats. If you, if you want to lay those down to shame that are disposable, they've got nut balm, ball balm, whatever they call it. Listen, I don't know. Maybe you're getting chafed when you're uh, trimming these things up. You can smooth those babies right up. Uh, I'm one of the first people that actually got to try this. They sent all of their podcast partners, uh, the first generation, and the thing's legit. Uh, I, I can tell you right now it works. Uh, my testicles are shiny and smooth like a shaved seal. They're amazing. My wife uh, will let you know that that's facts. The craftsmanship and detail on the 4.0 are next level. It's got a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. That's right. Uh, it also has an on-off switch that can engage a travel lock so this thing doesn't start vibrating uh, like one of your wife's tools as you head through the airport security. Definitely don't want that. 
Uh, it comes with a light. It's a 4,000K LED spotlight you can turn it off. So when you're underneath there in the, the shadows of your uh, man bits, you can see everything you're doing. comes with some guards, one through four different sizes. So uh, I don't know why you want to give your bush a flat top or something. I mean, you can shape it any way you want. Uh, also, wireless charging. Don't mess with cords and cables anymore. This thing uh, drops right into a little charger, charges up. Uh, it's awesome. So check them out. They have uh, deodorant and toner, as I mentioned. Everything you need to put a smile on your nuts face. And uh, isn't that what we're all after? Look, 20% off plus free shipping using the code WhiskeyThrottle at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you, and so will your significant other. All right. I also want to thank all of our partners. Uh, we're going to run through those guys. But uh, listen, we don't we don't connect with anyone on this show that we don't completely believe in. Uh, I, I put my own personal reputation on it. You buy a product that supports our show, you're going to like it. And if you don't, get back to me. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll forward that to them and, and take that poorly crafted product and shove it right up their ass. You have my personal guarantee. That's probably not true. I don't have any kind of guarantee. But I do stand by all these products. Uh, that's 100%. So I want to thank all of those guys, and here's a list of them. The Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Yamaha. Join the Blue Crew today and take advantage of all that Yamaha has to offer, including amateur racing trackside support, awesome Yamaha contingency, Jason Rain's demos and instructional classes, and frankly, the most high-performing motorcycles available in the market today. Whether you're looking for a four-stroke, a two-stroke, a side-by-side, -side, a quad, a boat, a generator, Yamaha prides themselves on absolute top-level quality and reliability. Rev your heart with Yamaha and join the Blue Crew today. Method Race Wheels, bringing you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road for your truck, van, sprinter, UTV, or SUV. They've been dominating the Baja 500 and 1000 and every major off-road event around the world for years with high quality and performance. They also look amazing. They come in a bunch of different styles and colors for your rig, so check them out. You can get 20% off a set of wheels using our code WhiskeyThrottle. No capitals, no spaces. 20% off using our code. Check them out. Troy Lee Designs is the leader in off-road motocross apparel and style. So whether you're looking for a cool new paint job for your helmet, maybe your name and number on your helmet lettered on, you're looking for new gear, you're looking for mountain bike gear, off-road gear, they've got the brand new Scout line in GP and SE models. Troy Lee Designs has it all. They've been leading this industry for decades, and they're going to continue to do it. Check out TroyLeeDesigns.com. SKDA is a moto graphics and seat covers company with several offices based around the globe. For too long, bikes and graphics have all looked the same. They just start to blend together. SKDA is working to change that. With super clean and unique design work, a bike with SKDA graphics stands out in a crowd and adds a touch of art to the world of moto. Hey, we need that. SKDA prides itself on providing premium customer service both before and after the sale is made. Visit SKDA online to view the current product range and get in touch with their team to get your bike refreshed. I want to just make a, a mention here that these guys, not only is their design way outside the box, very, very cool. They'll work with you on custom things. The, the products are incredible, okay? They'll speak for themselves. But what's really awesome, and you'll notice this the minute you order one of these, man, they give you an email saying, hey, the product's been shipped. Uh, hey, the product is here. It landed in this spot. Hey, it's coming today. Hey, your product's been delivered. They, they're just so good about staying in touch with you and letting you know where it's at. Customer service is 100%, and uh, that's just something that's rare these days. Check out SKDA. Here at the Whiskey Throttle Show, we're all about supporting brands that support our sport. And there's one tire company that has never walked away from the sport of motocross and supercross, and it's Dunlop. When times got tough and the economy took a crash, Dunlop stepped up and stayed with our sport to support it and the athletes and individuals that love it. 
Their MX-53 line and MX-33 lines absolutely dominate this sport. Every national championship at the pro level has been won in the last decade, and nearly every single amateur national championship at Loretta Lynn's has been won on a Dunlop. So if you're looking for high performance, you're looking for amazing quality, and you're looking to support a brand that never turns its back on our sport, there's only one choice for you, and it's Dunlop. Pro Circuit is the leader in aftermarket performance and quality. Whether you're looking for a little more horsepower out of your engine, some quality hard parts to improve the way your bike feels and looks, better handling through suspension or linkage or linkage arms, Pro Circuit is where you need to stop. It's your one-stop shop. You can go in there and get everything you need to make your motorcycle go from average to exceptional. Pro Circuit's got enough number one plates on their wall to side an entire home, and there's a reason for that. They're very, very good at what they do. Uh, the highest quality products with one goal in mind, and that's winning. Check out ProCircuit.com. Nihilo Concepts is leading the way in aftermarket hard parts. With their secondary on-switch device, something that was much needed in this sport, they've been innovating and bringing new products to market. Their latest is the new Nihilo Run-Cool Brake Pistons. They're designed to be stronger than stock and provide exceptional cooling performance with less brake drag. Most OEM calipers pistons are made from aluminum that just can't hold it to the heat and extreme demands of serious racing. When they get hot, the aluminum will distort, causing loss of hydraulic pressure and brake failure. Nihilo's run-cool pistons limit the area that boiling hot hydraulic fluid is able to come in contact with the piston, leaving two-thirds of the piston volume in open air with breather holes to enhance the cooling ability. It's made of a proprietary stainless blend, which is better at dissipating heat. You have issues with brake fade or brake failure, check out Nihilo Concepts among their many amazing hard parts and carbon fiber parts and titanium. NihiloConcepts.com. Seat Concepts is the leader in motorcycle saddles. If you're looking for a new cover or a new seat entirely, Seat Concepts is the place to go. They make custom seat foams catered to your height, weight, riding ability, riding type. They also have waterproof covers and, and foams that will not break down if you ride in a lot of inclement weather. And they pride themselves on being much more comfortable than OEM or any other aftermarket company. If you're looking for a new seat or a new cover, Seat Concepts, there's nothing better. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the Polaris RZR 800s. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the... If you've got a little Grom that's looking to get started in the motorcycle world, the best way to get them going is on a Stasic bike. They've got multiple sizes, so from your very young Groms to those who are a little more grown up, you can start them safely. They've got controls that allow you to control the speed so he can't get going too quick. They can touch the ground. There's not a lot of noise to distract them. It's the perfect way to get your child involved in motorcycling at a very young age. And if you've got a kid who's already out ripping, 
There's series popping up all over. For those of you in Southern California, go to www.ameminicross.com and join their local series. If you're outside of this state, contact your local track and ask them about starting a Stasic class at your local track. Get over to stasic.com and check out all they've got going on. Motul USA, uh, we, we lean hard on these lubricants to keep us uh, on the track and on the trail. And Motul has proven their quality over and over, uh, most recently with their Dakar win with Ricky Brabeck. Uh, they're sponsoring Supercross teams. They're diving into our sport again full, full throttle, and uh, we're stoked to have them on board. Amazing products, top to bottom. Motul USA, go check them out. And finally, last but not least, Specialized Bicycles. If you are in the market to start pedaling, this is where you want to start. Uh, they've got great entry-level bikes all the way up to the Cadillac, the new Levo um, e-bike. Uh, any, anything in between, man. It doesn't matter what kind of riding you're doing. Go check out and start with Specialized. Don't waste your time on something that's going to break. The derailleur's not going to shift after a couple months. Get something quality. Uh, these guys make it. Specialized leads that industry. Thanks for watching and listening to the Whiskey Throttle Show. Be sure to like and subscribe to get notified when new shows go up. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And visit whiskeythrottlemedia.com for additional content.